everybody and welcome to some interseason goodness from the sequelizers i'm your host as always jack chambers and joining me also as always it's matt stogden you know what you're a bus driver jack you live in flatbush so don't start spouting some elmore leonard bullshit you just heard because i saw that movie too <laughs> i've always been fascinated by driving buses i could barely drive a fucking car let alone a bus like turning uh, circle for example yeah i think i would really struggle with just keeping perspective of the whole thing and making sure i'm not <laughs> crashing into everything within like a 15 meter radius basically I, I dread to think what i'd be like behind the wheels of a bus to be honest and speaking of dangerous things on the road we're also joined by the one and only mr tim matum you know what that guy jack's got it right man he has no delusions about what he does us, we like to make ourselves seem so much more important than the people that come in here to buy a paper or, God forbid, cigarettes. We look down on them as if we're so advanced. Well, if we're so fucking advanced, what are we doing working here? Seems like we're supposed to be here today. <laughs> Speaking in code now, everybody. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, 90s code. Yeah. Funnily enough, we're recording this shortly before our Kevin Smith uh, live stream coming up on saturday but yes. by the time you hear this dear listeners that was a few weeks ago so <laughs> we're uh we're recording in august in preparation for this to come out in september but i know some hardcore kevin smith fans are in our fan base and probably got that reference but before we get into talking about the topic of the episode and delving into another pretty interesting often not addressed kind of side of hollywood i'd say Let's say thank you to our lovely patrons on patreon.com slash sequelizers, shall we? Because you people make this show possible. You make it free for everyone else. You make the interseason 10 episodes long. You make the main season 12 episodes long. And if you go there, you can get ad-free episodes. You can get bonus full episodes from the interseason, including one we recorded literally two days ago <laughs> in perspective <laughs> of recording this. What we've watched recently, patron-exclusive episodes as well. And during the seasons, you get all the lovely outtakes and nonsense that goes along with it, which I would argue is some of the funnier stuff we do, but it's really fucking off topic and sometimes very offensive. So sometimes we talk about minions and, and their pornographic adventures on the internet. Maybe we do, maybe we don't. You'll have to Sometimes we run a host on... club. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> You'll have to listen and find out on patreon.com slash sequelizers. And if you go to the highest of tiers, you can actually pick something for us to fix, something for us to discuss on the interseason, like these lovely executive producers have done. Jonathan Firth-Clark. What do you want? I say he's guilty. I want to hear your arguments. I gave you my arguments. We're not convinced. We want to hear them again. We have as much time as it takes. Mike Salvia. I am glad our son kicked the shit out of your son, and I wiped my ass with your human rights. Wow. <laughs> you had a couple of drinks in her, and bam! Michael Belcher. We're both part of the system. I drew a box, you walk a beat. It's like you said, Quentin, is keep your head down, keep it simple, just look at what's in front of you. I mean, nobody wants to see the big picture. Life's too complicated. I mean, let's face it, the reason we're here 
is that it's out of control. Josh van der Sluis. Josh Miles. Yeah. Give me, uh, can I have a, uh, hey, hey, you cut off the uh, incoming calls. Can I have a line? I want to talk to my uh, wife. I want to talk to my kids. He wants an outside line. Is it all right? Hey, I want a line. Yeah, Sonny, you Sonny, I'm Captain. Andy Steen. When I left the site just over two hours ago, I had a job, a wife, a home. Now I have none of those things. I have none of those things left. I just have myself in the car that I'm in. And I'm just driving. That's it. And Xenos. Good morning, Pontypool. This is Radio 660, The Beacon. Down here in the dungeon, under the street they call Drum. I'll be banging the drum for you all morning. I'm Grant Mazzy, and as always, I'll be taking no prisoners. Thank you, lovely executive producers. We very much appreciate you, your support. If you subscribe now, you get the back catalogue of all the old stuff as well. You can catch up on all the exclusive episodes, most of which are pretty evergreen and timeless, which works quite nicely. And the outtakes are just silly bollocks, so they work really well as being evergreen as well. <laughs> <laughs> Always time for silly bollocks. I'd be fascinated to go back to our, uh, like... um. Cinematic Crisis Squad episode, mm. uh, and now rank them in terms of how they do dealing with, you know, coronavirus. Yeah, coronavirus was a thing, wasn't it? Because I talked. Well, no, about... it was. It was the reason I... we were because we did it remotely. But yeah. at the same time, it was more like how they deal with it. Now we have a years of experience of mm. coronavirus. Hey, yes, I picked the scientist from Contagion. I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> that was my. That was my whole reasoning. Yeah, I picked Baymax. <laughs> Yeah. I had a plan. <laughs> Lots of hugs, you'll be fine. I had was my plan. Yeah. Yeah, to be fair, I felt like I felt like I could do with a hug from something that I could disinfect all over uh, yeah. a lot of that, a lot of that's this. A, that's a sex doll, Tim. <laughs> and I need one. <laughs> yeah. That's what we want on the Patreon money, guys, is to building Tim a sex robot. <laughs> <laughs> They're very realistic these days, so I'm told. It's just jack in tin foil. We all know what it is, for <laughs> God's sake. <laughs> tin foil is expensive though. It doesn't rip. We are, in fact, <laughs> talking about a topic that has many names, funny enough. We talked about, funny enough, in a recent... Jack, uh, Lawrence, William. Chamber <laughs> movies, exactly. <laughs> They're my films. So this is the films of my career. We're discussing my filmography from start to finish. But no, genuinely, we're talking about what are known as chamber films or bottle films or single room films. Essentially, a film that is set in one place. And it's either a building or a room in a building. And it's very constrained, often for budgetary reasons. And instantly you're think, probably thinking of examples in your heads, listener. As we often do with these interseason episodes, we'll kind of discuss the topic as a whole, the history of it, the origins of it, some famous examples. And then we'll dive into some of our favourite examples and some unusual and interesting facts and stuff in the second half of the show. Matt, as you often do with the history of cinema and film, why don't you kick us off talking about chamber films? We'll stick with chamber films since they're so close to my name. Yeah, yeah. The the <laughs> the sort of dictionary definition, as it were, of chamber films um, or chamber pieces, or however you want to call it, is um, I call mine film the involving. Piece, so yeah. <laughs> Get your chamber piece out of my face. <laughs> a film involving a small number of characters interacting over a short period of time in a limited environment. 
those three constraints, small number of characters, short period of time, limited environment. That's what makes it interesting. Because some of them you could say, well, that doesn't count, but it does count. And we'll get back into that at a later it's point. It's going to be a lot of that, I think. It's a lot that, of like, mm, I does think, that count? I'm not sure if yeah, that counts. It's literally like the whole like, is that a horror? Hmm, I don't know. That kind of <laughs> like, well, yeah, technically it all counts. I, I feel like it's an elevated <laughs> So the three categories I can think of that I would divide things into, one location with flashbacks. So you can have something like Saw, which is the room itself, mm. but has, you know, it's actually actually, you know, a larger building as we learn in the sequels, and it cuts away to the detectives and flashbacks and other bits and pieces. Um, then you have one location which may or may not move. That becomes also kind of the shining. It also kind of becomes something like lock, which is set in a car. It's like well, the lock, location lock is static, counts for sure. But the location itself is not static. He's static in it, but yeah. Um, and then finally, you have literally one room, as in there's literally just one room, four walls. People don't fucking leave or come in or whatever. It's, it's just you stay there kind of thing. Um, that's arguably. The, the sort of three quintessential chain pieces. And mm. the history is actually really, really straightforward. Much like we discussed for the Patreon special episode about black and white movies, it was originally a necessity, it is now a choice. It is uh, Cinema as we know it now evolved from the theatre, because that's how we understood the medium of you know conveying a story. Obviously you have books and things, and you have that stuff, but a, a, a performed story was usually a live performance, like a theatre play or, or an amphitheatre, whatever it's going to be, someone in front of you telling you a story, multiples, set, whatever it's going to be, music, everything. Transition to, hang on, we can actually move the camera. We can create things that aren't real. We can stop and speed up time. And yes, you can do these things as well in theatre, technically, but you can do them with a much more grounded realism, if that's the right phrasing, in, in cinema. Um, and that transition from theatre to cinema is interesting because I've seen plays which are set over generations and multiple streets and cities around the world and, you know, the set spins and now we're somewhere else. And uh, Les Miserables is a classic with that. I don't think it necessarily invented it, but very much pioneered that turntable style central um, platform. Mm. That they're, just, so they're walking and it's because of things spinning in the middle. It looks like they're on a long journey going over the place. And then the background does and bring streets to the barricades and, so you know you it's it's the magic of theater <laughs> but with a lot of plays it comes down to sometimes it's just a conversation in a kitchen that's the kind of shit that you find like very high art uh things that people study in drama school kind of stuff the idea that it's just you know yes okay all this flash all this flair but what really comes down to what you really need to do to show your your genuine acting prowess is a table a couple of chairs the audience and you. And the dialogue has to be fucking whip crack smart and just perfectly delivered. And you have to be captivating. That's in essence a chamber piece. That still exists in a chamber play. That's still a thing that happens. Transitioning that to a movie, you have obviously more things creatively can you can do with it in theory, more, more distraction. But it's that same thing. It's going to focus on, again, the writing, the performance, and again, that camera movement, that direction, what you choose to do with that space. Yeah, it's interesting because in theatre, you tend to, and this is speaking in very broad generalisations mm. and as someone who is not 
super versed in theatre. You basically, you want the scenes to last quite long because the longer the scenes are lasting, the more immersion you have mm. of here is that location, here are the here are the characters within it. And every time you change location, although there are very clever ways of doing it and very smart ways of transitioning between scenes in theatre, every time you're doing it, you're risking a little bit of audience immersion yeah, yeah. loss. Um, and also you're just you're losing time to change set and change scenery that's losing you time that you like you literally have no way of getting back um and so a lot of scripts that are written for theater are going to have quite long scenes in one location and then you know when the when the act break happens that's a chance to do a big transformation of the set that you can't do otherwise and things like that and so if you're in the early days of cinema if you're taking hey there's all these plays that already have scripts written. We can just turn that into a movie. You're going to end up at the in the early days of cinema with a lot of films that feel very play-like and have that minimal number of sets. And then you're also going to have the people who go, hey, we can fucking move the camera. We can do what we like. It's no, you know, <laughs> there's there's very little difference between us shooting this uh, this scene in eight rooms rather than one room and have the characters walk from room to room as they're doing the dialogue. And suddenly you get an explosion of, you know, oh, let's let's throw every location we can into, let's show off what we can do, you know, let's get these amazing landscape shots, you know, all these kind of things. And so you then get a transition into, like, let's throw everything at the, the screen and using a small number of locations becomes something very interesting and very, like we said, it's a choice rather than a limitation. And interestingly, you will find there are a lot of directors who very much favor it. Like, as you say, like it being a choice, they very much favor it as a, uh, either a challenge or also at the end of the day, they simply uh, thrive with that kind of confinement, that kind of restraint. Um, Ingmar Bergman, for example, uh, Throw Glass Darkly, Winter Light, The Silence, Persona, these films are very, um, not claustrophobic, but they are very tightly contained in what they're doing. And they, they bring you in and they, they make you, you know, sit with these people. And it's, it's as Tim mentioned, the, the, the thing, it's very much that immersion, as you say, the idea that it, 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 feels, it feels almost smothering in a way, in both the positive and the negative. That's why you tend to find, in addition to, you know, artists who favor this choice, stories inadvertently become this choice. Uh, there are quite a few examples of, you know, I'm, I'm going to create a narrative film. It's this kind of story. It's going to go in this direction, whatever. It's very much uh, part of this genre. Inadvertently, you realize oh, I'm making a chamber movie. Anytime you've made a film technically set heavily in a prison, inadvertently kind of made a chamber film. Um, maybe not, maybe you can do an expansive thing about the family outside and how it's gotten there and lots of flashbacks and bits and pieces, but you know, th th this is what becomes the, the contentious argument of what counts and what doesn't count, um, which we'll get to in, in, in a second, but like, uh, the Shawshank Redemption, for example, is it a chamber film? It's, again, it's set over, I mean, by the very definition I set out earlier, arguably no, because it's set over a very long period of time, like a really long period of time with a long changing, you know, face of cast members. It's just, it's a lot of people in a lot of 
uh, a very large time. And you see bits of cuts away where they get released from prison and such. Again, that nature of claustrophobia is still there. You still have that tightness. You still get to know the location as much as the people in said location. So does again, it, it, I think it's it's a it's a question of semantics. You know, does your story require this? Are you doing it because it's interesting? Are you doing it because of constraints? And that's why you see like um, through a lot of independent cinema or very much the '60s new wave sort of stuff, people will try and do challenging and bold things. Um, and obviously, yes, definitely with a lot of silent films. They were trying to, you know, invent the outside world, but it's cheaper to just make one location because it's just easier. Unless you're Georges Millet and he's just crazy. Um, <laughs> but that's kind of the point. It's if you ever look at somebody's like student film, it's almost always going to be a, a Reservoir Dogs, <laughs> the killing kind of thing, where it's one location and some criminals having a conversation of what went wrong because that's compelling. It's interesting, and also it's easier to make everyone's in the same place bits come and go yes but you still have that thing you're going to do the lighting once arguably that kind of stuff so it's a much it's it's fewer things to focus on even though it is inadvertently without realizing just as big as if not more of a challenge than shooting on any other location yeah i think you mentioning and comparing it to the black and white films we talked about earlier on is a lot of it is a technological limit for a lot of people and that is now less of a thing in the modern era. So people see it as a challenge to try and like, oh, what can I do with five people in a room? Can I still challenge myself to make an engaging story, tell an engaging story, make it a, a good film, all this kind of stuff. The mm. other thing that I think is still prevalent to this day, and you kind of touched on it there, Matt, with like student films and stuff, is obviously budget. Because it's going to be much cheaper to shoot in a real location and literally spend like a couple of days shooting, two, three, four days shooting compared to, oh yeah, I'd love to direct this. Uh, my first film is a $150 million superhero movie or whatever. It's like, <laughs> that's just not a thing. And some people's films are, you know, well-funded. They, for whatever reason, get picked up by a studio or get funding from a governmental scheme or whatever it is. But some people are just stuck with like, yeah, it's me and my mates and we're going to see what we can do. And... It's independent filmmaking, man. That's that's what it's all about. And you have a budget of literally hundreds, maybe thousands if you're lucky, maybe a 10,000 or so, and that's it. And having the ability to kind of gather people in a room or a couple of rooms and really, you know, save money on locations and sets and all that kind of stuff allows you to then invest that money in like the costumes and your audio equipment and your film equipment and stuff, which is when you're talking about your entire budget is a thousand dollars, what camera you pick or if you're shooting on your phone or what kind of mic you have is such a big part of your budget that you really need to consider like, okay, can we do this in a room where we don't have to like rent a place and location scout and all this kind of stuff because I need the extra $500 for the camera and audio equipment, like literally the balancing out there. And, and, and I know, you know, Matt from independent filmmaking and stuff, mm. literally shooting uh, to, to go behind the scenes of super happy kill time in people's flats, in, in your garage, in like, you know, just place parks in Norwich, that kind of stuff, like anywhere, anytime, anyhow. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, and that is still such a factor, I think in, chamber films and and why so many people still choose to do them in the modern era. Yeah, I think there's a there's a almost like a feedback loop as well where you go, "Oh, okay, well, we've not we've not got a lot of money. 
you know, even if you're even if you're a reasonably, you know, you're working with a studio or whatever, but you're on a tight, you know, two three million dollar budget, which sounds insane to like a small scale filmmaker, <laughs> but so also much money. Oh my god! But it it's so much money, fast. but also mm. it gets yeah. You can't. You look at films nowadays that cost two three million dollars, and they they are small. We, we will be talking um, about some of them later on. Funnily enough, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um. So if you take that and you think, okay, we've got we've got to get the most out of every cent or penny we've got, kind of thing. Okay, well, what what costs nothing essentially? <laughs> Making sure the dialogue is really good, getting really good writing. You know, okay, we could, so we'll put the focus on that because you know all the time I'm writing the film, I'm not spending any money, <laughs> and then when it actually comes to the making of the film, you know, it'll be really good because it'll be better written. And then you have a script that you're like, oh, I'm really proud of this. I'm really, I love the dialogue here and the tension and all that kind of stuff. So I'm going to put a focus on that when I'm making the film. How do I do that? By restricting the the environments we're in, by putting the focus on the characters in that moment. And you realise, actually, they don't need to be doing like a lot of stuff because the dialogue's so good. And it, it becomes that feedback circle of, by focusing on the character interactions and the and the dialogue, you reduce the need for other stuff in your film. Yeah. Um, Hopefully, uh, anyway, yes. That's the theory. <laughs> uh, sometimes you get a film that's just a bunch of philosophical waffle, and it's complete <laughs> bollocks. But mm. I'll talk about one of those later on as well. <laughs> you know, and then then you can get the films like uh, the the uh, before trilogy, where it's basically just two people talking, mm, mm. but it's their journey around the city and all that kind of stuff that also informs the film. Um, Which is another example of something that could have been a play. Which is two people talking, and you have used your imagination to imagine we're in a different area. Except, no, we're actually yeah. under a bridge. We're actually in a park now. We're actually in a cafe, a restaurant, on a bus, whatever it happens to be. Whereas, you know, yeah, the film would sorry, the, the play would have uh, a couple of things to set the scene, shall we say, set the mood, the ambiance. Yes. But at the same time, the <laughs> film can say, "Well, fuck it, we'll just go there." Um, but again, if you want to limit yourself and say, "Actually, no, let's do it a little bit differently," yeah. Just to go back to genre again, this is why you tend to see horror and science fiction as chamber pieces a lot. Because horror is, again, you're feeding into one thing. And what do you got immediately? Claustrophobia. Great. Problem solved. People can't get in or they're trapped or whatever. That's something people can relate to very quickly. Hmm. Um, you, can, you can literally have it become part of the film of like, yep. we are trapped in this location. We can't get out of this room. How do we escape from this room? And suddenly it, you've locked in the chamber piece nature of your thing and made it a, a virtue made rather than yeah, yeah, exactly the most claustrophobic film i have ever seen and it was very very nearly a pick of mine is weirdly enough the ryan reynolds movie of all people oh. to star in this film 2010's buried i like that film. i remember i like that film a lot and i went in i went i saw it at the cinema and I was like oh cool ryan reynolds what what's he been up to since Blade Trinity let's find out I'm sure he's up to some wacky antics. Bear in mind, this is a year or two before Green Lantern. And it's like, oh, God, he's about about to go to his sort of like, I'm aware that I'm a fucking like fourth wall breaking idiot. That I'm I'm living the Deadpool dream before I even become Deadpool kind of Mm -hmm. thing that he now is. Ryan Reynolds now just basically plays himself. Whether he's Pikachu or Deadpool, he's basically (laughs) just Ryan Reynolds. and. In Buried, for those of you who don't know, it is literally set in a coffin. 
and he is or in, in a in a casket sorry because it's a box um and he's literally ryan reynolds sand pouring in a dying phone as his basically own compa- only companion for the entire piece and that's it it doesn't cut away to anyone else by the way it's just him literally just him the whole time and you're seeing like oh i'm trying yeah. to reach down to scratch my leg i'm running out of oxygen oh i'm thirsty phone calls that on a like i said on a dying phone as he's buried alive in this casket it is the most claustrophobic movie I have ever watched. And I have next to no, despite my physical size, I have very little claustrophobia when it comes to small spaces. I don't <laughs> like getting stuck in things. I don't think anybody likes getting stuck in things. But, you know, I've been like cave diving and stuff and had to swim through underwater tunnels and stuff back in the day. And it wasn't fun, but I'm like, it, it didn't have like a panic attack. It was unfun because... If I don't make this through, I will drown and somebody's going to have to drag my unconscious body out and like resuscitate me, mm. that kind of stuff. Like, I'm quite wide. Am I going to get stuck in this thing? I don't <laughs> know. I'm the largest person here. Oh, shit. Um, and this is like 10 years ago, bear in mind. So, you know. Um, but yeah, I think that's a perfect example of it being like some films you can watch and not even realize it's a chamber piece. Mm. Buried is the whole gimmick, the whole driving feature the selling point of that movie yeah it's one guy in a casket the whole time that's it and there's it's like an you could not tell that story more effectively by going to different locations and cutting to different things the fact that it is that one location and such a small location not even a room not a building not a you know an area or anything like it is a Six and a half foot by four foot by three foot box, basically. And that is it. Mm. And that is a fascinating film and something I've not really, I want to say, particularly resonated, but I haven't forgotten about it because it stood out so much because I hadn't really considered an entire film could be filmed inside of a box. I didn't even think, you know, (laughs) I'm 20 when I'm watching this film. I had no idea it was even possible. Like, you could do that and put it in the cinema. That's mental. Oh my God. And thinking about kind of like famous examples to, to spin over to TV briefly, a lot of that kind of stuff happened when the writer's strike happened. And there's the famous fly episode of Breaking Bad, one of my favorite shows of all oh, time, yeah. Yeah. where it's basically mm. Jesse and Walt in one of the laboratories and they are just trying to catch this fly around the lab. And that's essentially the entire episode because of the writer's strike. There was a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes. There was basically no budget, but like, it's a weekly show. We need to produce this show. (laughs) Like, we don't have a choice to continue production, but a bunch of the writers are on strike. What do we do? Uh, Halt the plot for a week and just film it in one location and just have the two main guys just have chemistry and write a few lines for them and see them catch a fly and that's it like yep cool that'll do and that happens a lot in tv if there is moments where they have to stall for budgetary reasons or like writer strike like strikes and stuff like that or political reasons or fucking anime where they get oh great (laughs) yeah a bunch of filler before you actually get to the big fight or whatever it is that happens a lot in TV, but to commit to that for the length of a TV show, fine, whatever. It's gone one week, you know, you're on to the next episode kind of thing. The difference with movies is that this is a you're making a statement. You're doing this and you're you're there for 
one and a half, two, two and a half hours, whether you like it or not, you're in that coffin with Ryan Reynolds and, you know, you can't escape essentially. And that becomes such a defining feature of that. Whereas I think in TV, it's something you can almost miss and just be like, oh yeah, I guess that, I guess that episode of Breaking Bad was all set in one room. I hadn't really thought about it. Whereas you don't watch Buried and go, huh, I never noticed it was just set in a coffin. Like, <laughs> it's hard, it's hard <laughs> to fucking miss. Film is very much your chance to tell one story once. Mm. Uh, with TV, you can course correct. With the, well, I mean, I'll give you say that film may not be that way because the franchise is now, but in theory, you have an audience and you have what is arguably 15 or 30 minutes to get their attention and keep them in the seat. And after that, you have the rest of the movie to tell them a story they're going to, fuck, I'm never going to forget that. That's, mm. That resonates with me. That's really scared me, elated me, entertained me, made me happy, sad, horny, whatever the fuck it is. It's <laughs> done something and it's had an impact. And then if you actively say, I'm going to do a thing and rather than do a huge story with lots of things going on, I'm going to do nothing. What do you mean nothing? I'm going to do like, yeah, small, but it's film. Film is big. It's like film doesn't have to be big. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was trying to think about my own like personal definition for what I consider a chamber mm. film because I was looking at some of the lists and looking at and thinking about like the definition that Matt gave at the beginning of the thing. And you can have a very tight definition of like, oh, no, it has to just be in this one mm. location. But there are films that I consider, as we'll get into when we get into our picks, chamber pieces that are more than that. And then there's films that arguably fit those same criteria where I'd go like, no, that's not one. <laughs> and I think it, that flexibility me, is really interesting. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I think for, for me, and I, I don't know if this is a hard and fast rule. This is me just kind of throwing it out there as, 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 it, as it goes. For me, it feels like it has to, for it to be a chamber piece, the fact that it is in a single location feels like it has to have impacted the filmmaking and things like the choice of shots and and the actual nuts and bolts of how you have made that film so it has to be an integral part of the filmmaking process kind of thing mm. yeah I, if i look at something like say shawshank redemption or um like die hard which i saw show up in one list and i was That's like an interesting discussion. i guess it kind of yeah. is in one, one location building, but to of, me yeah. yeah but but to me it never feels like Die Hard is hemmed in because well, you, of that. You cut out to it, the cops outside, right? You've got Ernie there, like exactly. Hello, and the, we're yeah. talking to the terrorists and stuff. Yeah, and even there's there's obviously sequences of that which are very claustrophobic, and are making a a point of he's in he's trapped in this location. But because there's such a variety of like there's the different floors, there's the floors that are all done, there's the floors that are still being built, there's different, you know, there's the roof, there's all this kind of stuff. There's still quite a wide variety of locations within that. And to me, it never feels like they are limited in how they are shooting it by the fact that they're trapped in a single location. Whereas there's a bunch of other films which probably have more stuff where it cuts away to external stuff, you know, cuts, we get more flashbacks or whatever. And yet, because the main thrust of the film is impacted in that way, it feels much more like a chamber piece to me. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're entirely right, Tim. It's 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 that that could be the probably the resonating thing for this entire episode for us. By definition, it's a chamber piece, but we don't think it fits. And equally, this is a chamber piece, apparently, <laughs> but also no. Um, it's, yeah. it's it's really it's, because I say we so. make the rules here on sequelizers. <laughs> we always have done. 
And that's part of the, the beautiful nature of, well, it's the nature of classification. I always bang on about how genre isn't really a thing. It, it's the nature of, we want to make it something classified so it's easier to understand, easy, and for, for marketing purposes, it's easier to sell. Um, and so, you know, you end up saying, oh, obviously this counts. And it's like, no, by your rules, it doesn't count. Yeah, but it, it does. And so, no, I can see how thematically it does. And then equally, as you say, I'm a diehard. It's like, well, that counts, right? It's like, no, because it doesn't feel right. And <laughs> this is what we get to, to the the um, idea of, of of the two genres that I said earlier, like horror and the other one is science fiction. Because what you tend to have is a lot of sets to be built, a lot of really expensive shit going on to make it look like a not, you know, something other than Earth, effectively. Mm. And you have usually, usually in science fiction, a lot of allegory and philosophical conversations and retrospective looks at our own lives and yada, 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 yada. Let's talk about the contentious ones. Let's talk about the things Ooh. that don't, or do they? Let's, let's decide here and now, court of approval, do these <laughs> ones count? I have a small <laughs> list. Is this like our live stream votes where we're like, yes, that counts. Jack says a little that bit, counts, little bit. Tim says it doesn't count, so <laughs> that's the deciding vote this time. Yeah, kind, kind of, but more just a, just a general roundtable. So Die Hard, it's right, right at the bat. I think Die Hard doesn't count. I agree with you that it doesn't count. <laughs> yeah, because... <laughs> See, if Die Hard doesn't count, then technically... One could argue Saw shouldn't count, but that's not true. So Die Hard, fair enough. We we'll go with no. Go with no. Nice and clean. He's you only he's go a... outside in. Well, no, yeah. You so, see so, other yeah. traps and stuff in Saw, don't you? So that aren't that aren't flashbacks. Yeah. No, there must be flashbacks because he's in the there's, room. Well, the there's flashbacks, time. but it's also the detective story of like them going around. Yeah, the detective. Yeah, it's outside the room mm. of the detective. So yeah, which is it, it's just Al outside the fucking Nakatomi class. If anything, yeah. they're broader because they were different places. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, there's that, for example. So that, again, per the definition I mentioned earlier, that sort of counts. Here's another one for you that does it count. The Blair Witch Project. It's just the fucking woods. <laughs> I, feel, it's, I feel it's like because they're outside, it's yeah, a see, difficult kind of like... Open water is the same mm. thing. Open water in Blair Witch Project. Yes, it's outside, but yeah. it's in one location. And that location happens to be very big, but they can't get out. So it's like, ah, uh, does it count? I I would say it doesn't because there's different locations within the outside, whereas something like Open Water mm. or, or All is Lost, it's, it is outside, but it's also a limited number of locations outside, if that makes I sense. I the sea. So you don't, you don't have, water is water you, is yeah. water, and it all kind of looks the same whether you like yeah. it or not. As yeah. does yeah. the woods, but you do get the house. like There's a set there in the yeah, house sure, in sure. Blair Witch. There's mm. the campsite. There's the interviews with the residents in the town and all that kind of stuff. So there's... There's at least three or four well, different locations. Yeah. The there. Intro and outro, I think, is fair, but you usually have a yeah. little lead into it. And a point is made in um, Blair Witch Project that they are traveling, they are walking, they are going around, even though, though they end up going in loops and, and stuff like lost. that yeah, exactly. and can't find their way home. They are they are moving to different locations ah, and they're finding their way back. Then does Locke count? Because Locke is definitely a chamber piece. He's in a car though. He's driving down to London, I think it is. And it's like yeah, yeah, <laughs> but Birmingham, the outside yeah. James, yeah. It's like well, then see, this, this is what I'm trying to say, and I'm not again not attacking you guys at all. I genuinely think it's this way the contentious ones because we set out rules and they will always be broken. Well, yeah, of course. And we're not going to get hit a hard definition here because that's not how no. filmmaking works. <laughs> that's not how we work as humans. But I think Locke, the fact that you you mentioned that right at the top of the show, like, oh yeah, some people say Locke isn't because it travels. And I was like, that is like a hard, definite, 100% 
chamber movie to me and under no circumstances would I consider it anything else. And they're like, oh, but some people don't. I'm like, fuck, yeah, I guess you're right. Shit, does travel. <laughs> but, but you were in the car with Tom Hardy for essentially the, the entire time in a similar yeah. way to Buried, not quite as constricted as Buried, but yeah. near enough, despite him traveling. So, for example, if that coffin that uh, Ryan Reynolds is stuck in is like being dragged along behind a car, but you yes. still don't leave that coffin, that's still a chamber movie because you're contained within a physical space. So, in our mind subconsciously, is there a limit? So, for example, again, Collateral, the Michael Mann film, um, with Jamie Foxx and, and... I know there's some bits either side, and you have bits where, like, oh, you know, he goes into the club and speaks to um, Javier Bardem and stuff. But Jamie Foxx and Tom Cruise are mostly in that taxi, so is that not a no, chamber they piece? leave the taxi quite a lot in that film. Yeah, but not much. That's the point. They're, they're, they're not really... Go- that's you don't- way different to Locke. Locke doesn't get out oh, and no, it, people I would agree. I would agree. Like- <laughs> I would agree. It's definitely different. <laughs> but equally, is The Descent a chamber piece? Literally, literally, yes. But that's no different from the Rarest Project. It's It's just a cave rather than a fucking woods. I I, I was making the joke that a chamber is a cave, but yeah. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm trying to say. It is literally set in a chamber. I would would also make one, again, this is the point. I'm getting these ones out of the way because they are the most frustrating. Uh, A lot of people, and I'm not going to spoil the events of the movie, but Brie Larson in Room, it's like, well, that's definitely a chamber Mm. piece. I was like, yeah, for most of it. Um... And then it's not a chamber piece anymore, like at all. It's like, well, does that count? Because mm. a lot of it was. And as Tim mentioned, with the idea of how the filmmaker had to work, it's a really tight, small, contained cell, for lack of a better word. Actually, no, a cell is an accurate word. Um, so that, you know, that is a perfect chamber piece. But then it stops being that way. Similarly, mm. and this is probably the one I want to sort of get into the most here, the four alien movies. Now. Aliens, not really. Especially if you watch the director's cut, there's a lot of things go on there. You know, there's a lot of stuff. That's yeah. like, but uh, then eventually it stays in the compound. And it's like, well, yeah, that, yeah, but not really. Um, it's tight knit mm. and it's small, even though it's, you know, huge. Mm. But it's not the same thing. Yeah, I think it could be, I think it could be claustrophobic without being a chamber piece because yes. it can have moments where you feel... Entirely, like, yeah. entirely. Now, Alien 3 is all on the same planet from sort of effectively start to end. On but the it's... same planet is a fucking push. <laughs> Blair Witch Project is also on the same planet, you fucker. Like fucking fucking Ten Commandments <laughs> is all on the same planet. That's fair. <laughs> it's in the same prison complex, on the same place, in the same location. However, and again, it's that like claustrophobia. It's a small thing, but it still feels broad and vast and empty. But then you get the two opposite end versions. You got alien resurrection which is kind of a haunted house kind of thing so you got lots of different changing set pieces in this one ship but because the ship is big nah, don't film recount also there's lots of different faces mm. etc alien is a tricky one because you know other than going to the ship and coming back as into the downed space jockey scenes mm. and things it's a very small crew yeah, in a very Prometheus small space bit. Oh, fuck your face <laughs> um yes the prometheus bits if you want to be a dick about it um but you know alien is one of those uh, like there are many scenes in alien which you could say that's chamber piece that that moment there is but a lot mm. of alien is is in, in a very enclosed space with a very small crew over a very short period of time and it's like yeah that kind of counts and there'll be examples we will use throughout the course of this episode and people will say i don't know man 
they leave that building. <laughs> you said earlier <laughs> they can't leave the building. So, ah, no, fuck that. It's they, they go for a swim. That doesn't count. That kind of thing. You know what I mean? Um, so, and again, and that's that's why I wanted to bring these things up now because as listeners, people are going to be formulating their own thoughts, and there will definitely be, um, a, unlike the definitiveness, the definitive nature of a sequelizer's classic. Good crow, bad crow. <laughs> or you are a, an actor can be a good crow or a bad crow, uh, as in the film The Crow, playing the character of a the crow. The um, man, the bird, the crow. The man, yes. the bird, the crow, the man, the thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> some uh, OG as, references. As an old school shout out for long term yeah. listeners. Huh? Well, I mean, <laughs> OG from last year, but we've been recording so many fucking episodes. Um, Did we do The Crow last year? Yeah. It was like three years ago. I know, the <laughs> pandemic has been never-ending and we've done so many episodes. <laughs> but the antithesis, the opposite of that is chamber films. Is this a chamber film? Ah. And you could argue like philosophically and debate until mm. you're red right in the face. Like, no, you are definitely wrong or yes, you are definitely right. And you still couldn't convince a lot of people. And I think even our picks later, some people will say, uh, yeah, you could argue that because it depends how how limiting you want to be on that definition. For example, Ex Machina. I think it's a chamber piece. Yeah, I guess it is. Yeah, it's yeah, in, it's I, in a I compound. Would, I would yeah. say cha- Ex Machina. Okay. Yeah. Dread. Is that a chamber piece? Oh, in the same way that Die Hard <laughs> is. Dread, Die Hard, The Raid, are they chamber pieces? You do see outside Not really. the buildings. Because in... this is the key point here. We tend to associate a chamber piece Again, that I think of the theatrical drawout and what Tim mentioned earlier about getting the script right. We tend to think of dialogue and long, heavy, slow conversations and cuts and things and mm. and dramatic situations and the you know, you know, castaway. He's got that whole island to himself. It's like yeah, but it's still a camera with one man on a beach at a fucking volleyball. <laughs> so technically, yes, there's some things either side, but it's three fucking hours and two and a half of them and hits one man. You've got, I mean. Dread literally opens with like America is a radiated wasteland and all that kind of stuff, and shows you <laughs> an entire city. They're like, well, they've they've only got one mega city that they're in. Strong. Therefore, yeah. it's a chamber yeah. piece. Yeah. But again, you've got The Shining starting with the drive to the hotel and so that, and The Shining is arguably a chamber piece. It's three people in, oh, and some ghosts in a hotel. So again, it's it's it, uh, sunshine. I would say as a chamber piece. In a way, a science fiction film that does play on the claustrophobia and the isolation and stuff. Yeah, so I think, well, yeah. Rear yeah. Window is a classic, um, even though mm-hmm. you see an entire neighborhood of people, but because the main character is trapped in his room and the camera stays, and Tim mentioned about the confines of how you shoot it, because it stays in there with him as a can. So I think it becomes a spectrum, and on one end you have things like fucking rope, where it's like it's one room arguably one cut and that's it you stay with these people people come in and out but you the audience stay here you stay here you see you you are looking at the thing in the middle of the room because you know what the fuck is going on and then the other examples where you go like woman in the dunes for example which is an old 60s movie from japan about the idea of like where's it set well it's set in this town like right i don't know if that counts yeah yeah it is because the the guy gets trapped and enslaved basically it's like Right. Is that a chain piece? Critically, a lot of people think it is. Right. <laughs> yeah, I was I was gonna throw out the idea of like the main character being trapped in mm, location mm. as a as a as a element of it, but then I was like, Die Hard, he's trapped. 
but it doesn't feel like that. Yeah. You know, there's, there's, you know, are you are very arguably Shawshank Redemption trapped? <laughs> yes. Doesn't feel yes. like a chamber piece. Yeah. I mean, my dinner with Andre. I mean, he starts off, uh, you know, he's trapped in a, in a conversation at a dinner table and he's like, oh, shit, I don't want to go to this fucking dinner. He still goes to it. He still transitions to it. Yeah. The, the Reservoir Dogs has the Hateful Eight. They all have cutaways. They all have bits and pieces. But that central core thing is in that one room, that one space, that one mm. thing. Uh, Moon, again. Moon is definitely a chamber piece. It's just Sam Rockwell and Kevin Spacey as a robot. I fucking love, fucking love Moon. But so he literally moon. drives across the fucking moon. How can that count? Yes. <laughs> it's it's so it's so tricky. Um, it's like well, you know, literally the joke with Michael is like, "Fuck you, Alien Three on a planet." It's like, what about Moon on the Moon? Yeah, that's different. It's like um, a Moon. A Moon is smaller <laughs> than a planet. Thank you. As a man with an astrophysics degree, I'll have you know, I, well, the majority well, I, of moons are smaller than the majority of planets. Well, I, pr- I appreciate that. Thank you, Jack. Um, I would tell you one that I really think is an interesting chain piece, just to go on the whole like trapped business. And that is a ghost story with Casey Affleck and Rooney Mara. Um, all I will say about that film is Casey Affleck plays a character, then Casey Affleck's character dies and he comes back as a ghost in a sheet. I, I, by the way, I really like that movie a lot. <laughs> um, and he stays in a sheet as a ghost and he doesn't... It's Casey Affleck under there, but he doesn't say anything. And he stays in the house quite literally. This isn't really spoilers, hopefully, but um, for centuries, just standing there. And the house carries on. And we, the audience, Mm. just like him, are trapped in that house. So the house goes from being his home to some other people live there to a fucking crack den to a field and it's like what the fuck is happening to eventually this futuristic scape kind of thing and, and it's just this the idea of the the haunting a space effectively that's a chamber film that is even though it doesn't have the whole it happens over a short period of time it happens over arguably millennia <laughs> and involves kind of time travel but the point is that and ghosts but the point is that when dealing with a heavy theme, sometimes you want to confine the location to something simple for the audience to just resonate and cling to. I understand the Nostromo. Everything else is fine because I understand this. I understand this small thing you've given me. So everything else I could process separately, in theory. Uh, I want to throw a couple out there because I mm. want to see just what people Please. think of them as we're, as we're still doing kind of like a, a definition type yes. thing. Uh, Breakfast Club. Chamber piece. Oh, Tim's making a face. Does Tim, Tim, does, Tim disagrees? <laughs> or does he wait for Jack? Jack, what, what, yeah, what do you I've think, I've not seen Jack? Breakfast Club, so I don't know. Oh, of course you yeah, have. We've talked about that before. Five, yes. five kids in a room. It could be, yeah, if it they've could be got done detention, on... right? It's all... Yes. But it's yes. not all in the same... Mm. I've seen clips of it. No, because they, they, they break out. Stuff. Yeah, they, they do break yeah, out. That sounds not like a chamber face. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all in the school. Apart from Ooh. them being picked up and dropped off, they literally but, go into like I think two or three other rooms in the corridor. It's yeah, still very empty. It's, yeah, I don't know. It's, I don't know if I, I would think of it. Put it this way: when people, if said, I could take the exact script and say, "Right, we're gonna do this on the stage," it'd be like, "Yeah, that's an easy transition," because it's just mm. them in a room, and then you do a transition of like maybe a like a top thing where they pretend to crawl through fucking air vents or whatever, and then suddenly, yeah. you know. Uh, and is in the, in the in the office, and it's like, oh shit! And it's like, okay, <laughs> but he's not. He's on the other side of the stage. I can see you both, and you're like peering over. And it's like, yeah, that's a chamber piece to me. 
Um, and also the thing about Breakfast Club, it's the discussions that carries it. People remember yes. those. It's yeah. one of those oh, yeah, driven absolutely. by dialogue kind of things, right? Yeah. Okay, what, what else you got, Tim? His I'm is a very contentious yeah. one. Uh-oh. And this one you definitely couldn't do on stage. Ooh, Gravity. Gravity is a... See, that's a very interesting one because it does stay with basically one person the entire time. And mm. if you really want to be almost picky about it, it's even more claustrophobic than Buried because you're in her suit. Yeah. For the mm. most part. You're like literally... Even the momentary breaks from the suit are still in an environment that's fucking yeah. breathing all the time and driving me absolutely <laughs> mental. And make mm. I have whatever good response people have from certain pieces of ASMR. Ninety nine percent of ASMR makes me have the opposite response and makes my skin crawl. That I is ASMR like, having a skin crawl, but you have a revulsion to it, like my yeah, wife yeah, does. I have she, a bad reaction yeah, mm, to ASMR. Yeah. She um, does. Everyone. Get, well, it sounds like you and my wife get the sort of triggers from ASMR, but rather than going, "Oh, that's interesting," so she goes, "Fuck off." Yeah, you take I get, that tingling. I get, I get, get, fi- I get physically uncomfortable from yeah, yeah. People talking really quietly, but into an amplified <laughs> microphone where something is supposed to be really quiet, but it's actually really loud and in your ears. People literally whispering in my ear in real life. Emma does that to me, and I freak the oh. fuck out. Like it makes my bleh, I get there. Hate it. <laughs> so. The breathing and gravity really fucking irritated me, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> so, gravity, I would say... Is, spa- yeah, I'd is say, space yeah. a container? Well, oh, the no. suits is chamber. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, okay, I, I would say yes, it is a very limited set of environments, because space is actually emptiness. Space is not a limited environment, though. As a, as a man with an astrophysics degree. <laughs> no, you c- the space is just a thing. <laughs> space is an absence. So yeah, I think gravity is as much a chamber piece as Snowpiercer. Ooh, set on a train. In that it's like... But then also the snow, Die Hard. The Snowpiercer train. Under Siege isn't the fuck. Under Siege isn't the chain. But that's not a boat. So, oh, God damn it. I don't know. And the Snowpiercer train is <laughs> an yet, extra long yet. mega train as well. Yeah, it's not yeah. just like, you know, the five yeah. o'clock to under, London. Uh, <laughs> under Siege, not a chamber piece. But Das Boot, definitely. There a we go. Piece. That's a fucking. Yeah. <laughs> Hunt for October, not a chamber piece. Two sub, three submarines. Um, <laughs> and also getting on and off submarines. Yeah, I think. Um, have you got any more, Tim? Because I'm, I'm I'm fascinated by this. Because I think I think as much as we're going to be like, have been discussing it, this is the discussion. Just literally listing mm. movies and saying what about that mm. draws out as much as we could say by doing a definition or a list of things or saying oh well, we're prime example. It just becomes a list because when you say well, this doesn't like cube, cube definitely counts. You don't cube know how many rooms counts. there are. Yep. Mm. You just say those people, and obviously that doesn't help. It helps. Sorry that the. Um, <laughs> The set is one box with different gel lighting in it. It's mm. just the same thing, yes. effectively. It's very cleverly filmed. Phone booth with Colin Farrell. That's a chamber piece, even though Definitely. it's all of New York. It's um, named after the container. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But does Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead count as chamber pieces? Mm. It's very difficult. Snyder version, definitely not. No, 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 that's not. No, the original, not. original Romero stuff. They have a big fucking truck that they drive around in the Snyder yeah. version. I would think, <laughs> I think, I mean, if, again, back to the horror thing, Evil Dead, 
maybe man, probably not cabin in the woods but evil dead night of the living dead certainly because the whole like i'm trapped in one mm. thing but uh then you've got other things which are literally directly from plays like carnage and the lower depths and one night in miami and yes you have bits that cut away from that but they're still quite confined and they don't really mm. leave there very much that feels like something that uh as i say they're just transitioning from the play um Doubt is one that could be construed that way, but it's like, nope, because it's the school and the parish and that whole area. You don't, you leave it enough that it feels like a story in an environment, certainly an environment, but not in the same way. It doesn't have that mm. tight urgency. I think the thing that we're, we're kind of circling around here is that so much, it's, it's very objective. And in order to nail down why a film for us is or isn't a chamber piece. You would probably literally have to go through the film and you would point at shots mm. and go like, not even necessarily scenes where they're like moving to a different bit or, or whatever, and just be like, no, there's there's a sense of landscape, there's a sense of openness here that that means I don't regard this film as a chamber piece. And it it, it, it comes down to those very simple but... Uh, evocative filmmaking choices mm. about things like how it's lit what the uh, what the lens that the ca it's mm. being shot with is how you're you know how far you are away from you know are you shooting the ca uh, conversations so that you're from point of view of the character or are you shooting it over the shoulder all these kind of things can all add to a sense of uh claustrophobia being trapped isolation all these kind of things that we associate with chamber films and and like you say, Matt, like a, a lot of it can be genre concerns, whether, you know, how much dialogue is there in the film, you know, and how much is is action or how much yeah. is, you know, uh, dance numbers. You know, I don't know if there's any musical that's a chamber piece. I'd be fascinated to see. Um, yeah, well, well, there are heavy elements, certainly. Um, well, you mm. do centre on a location more than anything else. One could, yeah. one could argue in a weird way, and it's not a musical, but. Anna, she's just Anna Karenina now because it's meant to be like a stage but that's that's a separate mm. thing entirely I was thinking about the producers but like yeah. the start bit is really heavily in you know the Bialystok office um, mm. but then it's like yeah but then it goes to the theatre and the rooftop but it still feels like so yeah. yes the answer is yes maybe Tim <laughs> yeah um, but it is it's down to these a, a wide variety of filmmaking choices that create a atmosphere mm. and a sense of being trapped of being limited in in the location that you're in and really that's kind of the beauty of filmmaking is that you can make something that doesn't necessarily obey to a hard and fast rule of like we're never going to leave this one location you know you're like oh no we can we can play around with it a little bit because the director the cinematographer even stuff like the the production design and stuff like that you know it could be that you you know we might watch a film and be like oh yeah i've realized you never actually see out of a window in this film mm, yeah. and that lends to this sense of that right whereas you know in another film you know even though the, the locations are quite limited you keep seeing the city outside and stuff like that and that's you mm. know there's all these things that contribute to this sense and so it becomes this very subjective thing um and that's fascinating in its own right yeah yeah very much so Tell me, have you ever wanted to simulate your own chamber piece? Spending an hour or two in a single location for a compelling reason? Then you're in luck, because today's episode is brought to you by HelloFresh Canada, for our Canadian listeners. 
With HelloFresh, you get fresh pre-measured ingredients with mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. Skip all those trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. You can now enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in 30 minutes or less with over 25 recipes to choose from each week. There is something for everyone to enjoy. All recipes are designed and tested by professional chefs and nutritional experts to ensure deliciousness and simplicity. I've had a look through HelloFresh's recipes and their turkey bibimbap and gochujang bacon fried rice dishes look especially good. Oh, damn. I love a good bibimbap. Seriously. People get into Korean food. It's goddamn good. So go to the link in our show notes to get $80 Canadian off, including free shipping on HelloFresh, the number one meal kit. Well, let's talk about some examples. Dive into some... We've kind of touched on Die Hard and a few other bits and pieces. Die Hard 2, it's in an airport and a plane. Oh my God. Exactly. (laughs) Die Hard 3, it's trapped within New York. Mostly, (laughs) apart from the end when they're in Canada. (laughs) Oh God. No. Let's talk about some specific examples, shall we? And I'm going to do it a little bit different this week. Talk about some Rotten Tomatoes before we get into the films. So I'm going to give you guys the list, the listeners the list, and then we'll dive into individually. Of course, we have two picks each, so a total of six films. I'm going to assume a lot of listeners are going to go, huh? What? What? Huh? Yeah. Yeah. I have, of of your guys' four picks, I've seen one of them. Nice. So (laughs) So I'll start off with mine. My choices are The Man from Earth, and I will elaborate on that later. And Green Room. Again, I'll elaborate on that later. Matt, you have picked A Page of Madness and Mother. Because it's got an exclamation mark on it. <laughs> yeah, there are, a couple, there are a couple of films called Mother. So this is specifically the one with the exclamation mark. mark at the end. And then yeah. Tim, you have picked Hard Candy and Clerks. Hence the Kevin Smith at the top of the show. It all comes full circle. Yes. Mm. So, gentlemen, we've got six films there. Love a bit of Rotten Tomatoes. What do you think is the highest scoring? What do you think is the lowest scoring? And in fact, I will do a twist on this because that's too easy. (laughs) Which one of these six movies does not have an official Tomatometer rating? And which one has 100%? That is the question. I am... Twisting the the formula all around. An official official tomatometer rating. That's interesting. Yes, I think I I, I think I have answers for the the, the latter two, mm. and I can probably drum up answers for the other two as well. <laughs> so I don't think the man from Earth has a tomatometer score. Interesting. Okay. Um, because I think it's just too small a production. I will I will get into the budget of that movie when we talk about it. It's yeah. it's pretty <laughs> fucking small. Um, I think A Page of Madness has 100%. Interesting. Because, not to go into Matt's film too much, but basically it's a very old film that was kind of rediscovered recently, if if I'm understanding it correctly. And I think it would just have a lot of, it would have a very few number of reviews and they would all be going like, what an amazing discovery from, you know, 1926 or whenever it is. Yeah. Amazing, like, wonderful, like so innovative for its time, etc., yeah. etc. Tim, you're reading off and, my script. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, yeah. we'll, we'll touch on it. So, yeah, A Page of Madness, as you said, Tim, is uh, recently discovered. Originally came out in 1926. Uh, and, and then lost for 50 years. Yeah. Release date on Rotten Tomatoes is April 12th, 2018. And I'm like, hold on a minute. What? <laughs> that is, of course, the streaming release date. And I was like, ah, yeah. okay, it was, it was lost until... Oh, I'll get into my episode. I'll talk about it when it comes up to my thing. We'll talk about it in more detail. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, um, interesting. I, I'm, I'm going to disagree with Tim. Mm. I think A Page of Madness is the unclassified one or the un... Whatever you just said. Mm. The, the non-officially rated one because it is... Yes, important. Yes, big. But because it was a film from the twenties, lost until the seventies, not really seen outside a lot of places, uh, very often at all. I think it's one of those very much. Uh, obs- it's so obscure that it's just probably not got enough, um, to to warrant, um, a, um, an official rating. The one hundred percent. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna game this. I've, we've been doing Rotten Tomatoes for a while now, boys. <laughs> I can see outliers on all of them. I can see people saying. I think Page of Madness is. It is a one hundred fucking percent. Fuck you. Um, I I agree with that regards. I think it probably would and will be when it gets eventually to the point that it gets classified. If I'm correct in that assessment. I think these are controversial picks for us because I think we've gone for films that people don't like and weren't received well, either box office or critically or anything like that. Because I remember, I think I reviewed half of these fucking things. Mm. So, 100%, I'd like Green Room to be 100% because that movie's fantastic, but I don't think it is because it's just enough people saying, eh, um, I like Nazis. Um, yeah, my, my I worry. didn't like the bit with the arm. Yeah, it's squeamishness. Uh, Mother is far too fucking Aronofsky for people to go, yes, 100%. <laughs> um, Hard Candy was a difficult one at the time of release. A lot of people didn't get on with it, so I'm not going to say that one. Clerks can't be because there's too many Kevin Smith detractors. And, and Man from Earth. I genuinely like it because I'm a Star Trek nerd uh, and I-, I think it's the kind of thing pe- only people seek out who are going to like it anyway. Um, so I think I think it's Man from Earth 100%. So basically, the inverted version of what Tim picked. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then would you like our what's lowest yeah. and then what's highest apart from 100%? Yeah, yes, so highest, what, what's lowest. highest apart from the 100% and what is lowest apart from the unrated one? So... You, so you you can't pick Man from Earth or um, yeah, Page, of uh, Page from Madness <laughs> yeah. on either side. But of okay. the other four films, what's the highest? What's the lowest? We're we gonna come to the same conclusion, Tim. Well, actually, no, you haven't Probably seen Probably not. Yeah. You didn't just now. No. So. I think similar. I think lowest is gonna be Clerks because mm, I think there'll be people who are just. It's just too lowbrow kind of mm. thing. Even though it got a lot of praise when it did come out. So, hmm, maybe. And I think highest will be hard candy because even though it's tricky subject matter, I think it is a thinking of the kind of films that critics like mm, um, yeah. and stuff like that. I think it is it is less divisive than either Mother or Green Room. Interesting. I think Green Green Room's probably a better film, but it's too pulpy, and Mother is too artsy fartsy. Um, 
I get your logic, Tim. I c- I can I could be swayed by your logic, Tim. Um. However, as someone who reviewed Hard Candy, um, I think the lowest is between Hard Candy and Mother because I think they are very divisive among critics and and people who watch these movies. I think genuinely they'd be like, I see what you're trying to do there, but mm, pretentious. Oh, I didn't like it. Oh, you were trying to be, mm. you were too in your face about it, too on the nose, arrogant, whatever. You know. And I don't agree with those statements. I think both are really good movies. Um, so I'm going to say Mother out of sort of self-flagellation because <laughs> you know not only is it like as we'll discuss later there's also religious shit going on so obviously people are like oh for god's sake just do a black swan <laughs> too um <laughs> <laughs> just make noah again yeah um and i remember on the day of release critics were whinging about mother and of all people seth rogan chimed in and said no you dumb shits expensive to start <laughs> what it's all about and it's like wow interesting defender but um yeah and i think the high the second highest under the 100 is going to be oh, it's going to be the clerk's green room in my opinion let's say let's say green room well one of you is nearly a hundred percent correct one of you is only got one thing wrong and that person of course is matthew bloody stockton isn't it ah. <laughs> uh, you have in fact nailed that the Man from Earth, and it is a technicality, and I've been very cheeky about this, oh, uh, is 100% on the Tomatometer score with five reviews. S- isn't it five to qualify, effectively? Correct. And you want okay. to know why a Patreon Madness doesn't have a rating? Probably got three or four. Four reviews. <laughs> Fucking hell! <laughs> <laughs> they are, in fact, all glowing and positive, unsurprisingly. So it would be 100%, but it's a minimum requirement of five ratings in order yeah, to qualify. yeah. yeah. So, there you go. Um, and you were off by 1% with the lowest score. So, Hard Candy oh. is a 67%. Wow. And your choice of mother is 68. Fuck so, Hard off to Candy both of is those. the lowest just. Um, and the highest is, in fact, Green Room, again, by 1% higher than Clerks at 89%. So ni- 90 for, for Green Room. 90 for Green Room, 89 for Clerks. See, again, so I, you, I... You are very, very close by a 1% and one movie. I don't I don't agree... I'm sorry, I don't agree with Green Room being 90%. Of course I fucking do, but you know what I mean. I think that there's some... there's some. I think all of these are 80s, 90s, 100s, if you will. Um, and then very challenging and very interesting pieces. I think all of them... Yeah, all of them have a lot to say. I was about to say that a lot. All of them, <laughs> despite their minimalist approach, have a lot to say about yeah. the characters and the filmmaking and the message and the themes and stuff. The way they go about it is different, but they're all trying to say something incredibly profoundly important to the characters and the narrative. And let's face it, an audience. Um, but let's. But also, critics go, mm, how very pretentious. Mm, oh, I don't <laughs> like the subject matter. So quick rundown, Man of Earth, 100%, Green Room, 90%, Clerks, 89%, Mother, 68%, Hard Candy, 67%, and A Page from Madness should be 100 but it's nothing because it's not officially <laughs> qualifying. So there's a, a fun little rundown of the six Very movies. interesting. And now yeah. you guys know what to expect for the next hour. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> now you can all go Google like, oh, what's this film? What's that film? Blah, 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 blah. And see where they're available on streaming services and stuff. 
One of mine's <laughs> on YouTube for free. <laughs> Let's start with a page of badness. Speaking of that movie, then I mean, it's chronological, right? It's the the first it one makes by sense. <laughs> seventy <a> years, <laughs> nearly. Yeah. Um, so I mentioned about the transition from theatre and stuff like that, and um, the uh, the twenties and thirties. Obviously, silent movies are a thing all around the world, and a page of madness is a Japanese movie. And it's a fascinating one. It's only 71 minutes long. So it's about an hour and 10 minutes. Um, it's littered in exactly an hour on Rotten Tomatoes, weirdly enough. Fucking Rotten Tomatoes. Don't uh, <laughs> um, But it is very heavily influenced by German expressionism. So it's, it's fast. In the same way that Kurosawa's Throne of Blood is Shakespeare as interpreted by Japan, this is something like Nosferatu and Dr. Caligari interpreted by japan it's like that's a very different thing and the whole thing is sent uh, set in an asylum in the countryside um and it's directed by tenosuke kinagasa and written by him and Karl Bata, who is a nobel prize winning author wow and he's, he's they wrote it off in tandem with two other people i believe but the point is this thing is a really interesting breakdown of mental illness as it's portrayed in japan at the time and let's face it the stigma it still has in japan today there was a serial killer in japan a short while ago who was killing people who are mentally ill because he thought he was doing a service to society because they were just sort of like you know slowing things down it's like the elderly and mentally ill they're not helping society we should get rid of them it's like Fucking hell. Um, so multiple downsides of collectivism. But the film itself um, is set in this one asylum and this one janitor who works there and he is very much fixated on this one particular patient. And that patient is actually his wife. And we learn that she went insane basically because of him and his uh, actions in the past. And he's like, I almost... So not necessarily atoning, but he's very much um, very guilt-ridden and takes a job just to be around her and care for her in his own, his own way. Um, and then his daughter arrives and uh, she is going to be married off to somebody and he's then terrified, like, oh God, if they find out that he, her mum is in here, because uh, the, the sort of opinion of the time would have been that it's hereditary and like guaranteed hereditary. Uh, which was the same thing like, that that Chaplin was had a bit of a stigma for because Chaplin's mother um, had mental illness, and it was always like the whole like, "Does this run? Am I, am I insane?" It's like, well, he's bounding around like a fool. He must be insane. To the asylum with him. That kind of nonsense. Um, and obviously, things some things are hereditary, some things are not. But this wasn't an age of that kind of sort of science. It was an age of like chain mm. of the walls kind of shit. Um, anyway, so he's terrified of this thing coming out. So he has a lot of dream sequences and wonders what it would be like to you know basically beat the head doctor who works there and to set his wife free and give masks to everyone so they can have a smiley outward complexion just all this very strange fantasies that he has and then it goes out of control and his fantasies sort of overtake him at one point and he he sees that the um one of the inmates for example is marrying his daughter he's like no 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 it's got it's got out of control um and like like inception going wrong basically you know the the dream turning on you um but the imagery is stunning and it's 
it's very much a chamber piece because it is set in this asylum almost entirely. And it escapes that through dream sequences, through very strange, erratic, expressionistic uh, language. Um, and that's why German expressionism is such a beautiful thing, because it's such stark imagery, it's really, really bold contrasts, like interesting designs on the walls. Even though you're in a very single location, you can use these um, very almost, almost like theatre backdrop style canvases. It's transportive. It takes you to those places, and it's all about the movement and interpretation of things. Because obviously, you would have had, you know, music being played, but it wouldn't have been the same thing. And uh, it's a it's a weird movie as well because in Japan at the time, it wouldn't have been done like uh, it would have been done in 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 Europe and America, where they would have just, you know, played the movie and ting a ling a ling ling ling, play the piano in the background it would be a sense of someone would have been there reciting the story. I can't remember the specific word for it, unfortunately, but there's a Japanese style of theatre, um, which is a single person on a stage, on a cushion, telling you a story. And going, oh, I'm being very um, you know, expressive in how they do it. Uh, but it's just a single story thing. Anyway, um, th the key point is that that kind of thing. You'd have, rather than have like title cards and stuff, you'd have someone almost narrating what was happening as well as music in the background, etc. Like, almost like an offshoot of Kabuki in a weird way. So it's a very it's a very interesting film. It's really cool visually. It's really striking. It doesn't look like it's from the twenties at all. I mean, when if you see like even just any imagery, but as I say, it's free on YouTube. You can you can find it. It's just a page of madness. Whole thing is there. Um, but really bold movement and 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 uh, almost dance and in a way and it, it, it's. Uh, it has intertitle cards, so you can tell you know what's being said effectively. But it's, yeah, really, it really keeps you in that location. You do feel trapped, both willingly and unwillingly. You want to see where it's going to go, and then as the janitor's, um, as his his grip on reality starts to slip, the location that you're sort of used to, the bars, the familiarity is gone, and you start losing track of where everything is. And that's the nature of the say the, the chamber piece thing. You you get lost in it all um which again is the nature of arguably trying to convey what it's like to be in an asylum in a weird way like the father does it, the, the 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 recent oscar winning movie the father which is literally set in one location that keeps shifting and changing to different locations but anthony hopkins is lost because he's obviously suffering from dementia alzheimer's whatever it be. so he he ha he he isn't lost track. and you as the audience member like oh shit you're changing the characters now i'm, I'm confused I'm a little bit lost. It's almost a shot like a horror film. And this one as well, similarly, kind of shot like a horror film because it's this threatening, awful environment you don't want to be in. But this man is actively choosing to be there because he put his wife there by being a shit. Um, and he fears, you know, the life that his daughter's going to have because of it. Um, yeah, no, it's a fascinating movie. As, as mentioned earlier, shot in 1926, lost for decades. The director found a copy, I think, in a garage somewhere in the 70s. That is mad. It's mad. It was re-released. Uh, I know a lot of film schools and colleges and stuff would, would put it on in the 90s and 80s and things like that. And be like, oh God, because it was a discussion of psychology. And they had actual psychiatrists saying, actually, this, it's a fairly accurate representation of how it was done at the time. Uh, not necessarily a good way of doing psychology, but unlike something like... Um, uh, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, where it ends and it's all oh, just a dream sequence, and I have the cure. <laughs> we can now cure him. It's like, oh great, um, or cure, I should say. Um, it's like, well, well, no, 
the dark ending is is more interesting. The fact you just switched it with the whole ah, it was all dreaming in asylum. It was fine. It was, it was a good Wizard of Oz sort of ending, and I like it. But that was because it was it was too scary to release as it was. The idea of that you know they're talking about somnambulists who could just kill people, so that they could have this happy ending switch. It's like yeah, that's kind of like an asylum, I guess, in in a sort of very heightened interpretation of it. But this. The way they had the, uh, the single overseer from the doctor and the way they would treat the patients is like, actually, this does actually feel quite... Uh, and, and also the stigma of mental health. It's, it's very much there. So, yeah. Fascinating movie. I recommend it to everybody. Uh, it's very short, so, so get on with it, basically. Um, watch it. And if you want to see how to do something without... Not only without multiple locations, but without sound. We talked about like, the script, dialogue, with all these things. If you don't have that, what do you have? You have very few locations. Well, you can change that with the art of, you know, cinema, interpretation, movement, and all that sort of stuff. But then you have the music taking in with the script and the dialogue and things, and you're still expressing a lot of really interesting, important um, uh, talking points, but in a, in a very different way. And, and I know you guys haven't, haven't seen it, I assume. Correct. No, I had not heard of it until I saw it listed. And then I Googled it and I was like, well, no wonder I haven't seen it. <laughs> yes. <Yeah, that's... laughs> it was missing for 50 years. Yeah. I, I, again, it's, it's, it's hardly me like, oh, you haven't seen it, you say? <laughs> now, bollocks <laughs> that, because I, I, I always think that's the wrong attitude. Um, but hopefully someone will go, oh, that's interesting, and go watch it and go, shit, and... That, I, I enjoyed that. Oh, no, I fucking hate that, Matt. Um, but don't worry, it was only an hour of your time. <laughs> Just even just looking at the um the Wikipedia page for it, like the poster for it oh, and yeah. the the kind of the shot of one of the uh actresses mm. um the the uh the dancer in it, um uh Aiko Minami. Um it's it's fascinating looking. Like it's like you say, it's it does feel that very German expressionism filtered through an entirely different culture mm. to get something that is completely unique. Um, yeah. And I can imagine if 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 the rest of the film is that striking, I can imagine that it is is a singular experience. I think if you didn't, obviously the silent film kind of gives it away aspect. But if you said to somebody, "Oh, this was a very creative thing they did as a project," like for, for you know some school kids. Oh yeah, mm. but yeah, they shot it in like uh, 1997. You go, okay, fair. And you watch the first mm. 10 minutes, you could genuinely believe that. Mm. There's so little that places it in the time it's set that it's, it's kind of almost terrifying in a way. How, 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 it's, it's so, so, so difficult to say how timeless it feels when it's so obviously a black and white mm. fucking silent movie from <laughs> Japan. But you know what I mean? It's, 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 in its visuals, it feels like something that could be yeah, that could have been just a stylistic choice, like the fucking lighthouse to come out whenever. Yeah. Yeah. So, from uh, a page of madness, from an asylum, from the crazy, crazy world of lost films and all that sort of stuff. Um, Jack. Hey, man. Do you, uh, do you want to take something else that looks like it was shot in the 90s or 20s or <laughs> 80s on a camcorder? <laughs> Why, yes, I do. I will talk about. Uh, thank you very much. 2007s, not <laughs> 1995s, despite the <laughs> look of the thing. Yeah. A film called The Man from Earth, also known as Jerome Bixby's Man from Earth, because it is uh, written by the late, great science fiction writer Jerome mm. Bixby. You might not recognise the name, 
if you've watched the original series of Star Trek, if you've watched the Twilight Zone, including the Twilight Zone movie, you've seen some of Bixby's work. He did perhaps most famously Mirror Mirror, the incredibly famous episode of the Star Trek, the original series. Mm-hmm. Um, and the uh, It's a Good Life segment of the Twilight Zone movie and the mm-hmm. Twilight Zone yeah. short story that it's based on and all that kind of stuff. And this was his final release before his death. Um, I think he died actually before he like completed the manuscript on his deathbed 10 years earlier, and it was eventually made into a film, essentially. And it is, it is literally one room. It's a group of professors from a school getting together and talking about their experiences and their lives and stuff. They've worked together for a while, and one of them, the main character... Uh, John Oldman is leaving, moving away somewhere. And they basically discuss like, oh, what have you been up to, John? And they talk about his life and talk about the, the other faculty members. And they all just have this kind of big discussion. It's literally one big conversation. The entire film is mm-hmm. basically dialogue between these seven, eight characters. like, And that is it, pretty much. Um, the crossover with um, Star Trek again, uh, John Billingsley. Yep. who you may recognize as Dr. Flox from Enterprise, uh, the arguably worst series of Star Trek, I'd say. <laughs> yes, uh, the worst. Um, <laughs> Picard coming close. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's bad, but he he's not, he's my one of my favorite characters in Enterprise. But yeah, he's great in it. David Lee Smith plays uh, John Oldman, the main character. And David Lee Smith, you might say, who's he? Like, Excellent question. He's essentially <laughs> a nobody. He's been in like CSI and a, a couple. He's like one of the smaller guys in one of the guys in the Fight Club in Fight Club. That kind of guy. He's in the background. He's in like Zodiac, but a man in window and shit like that. He's one of those actors. <laughs> man in window. Uh, seriously, he literally has unnamed, uncredited. Oh no, roles I know. Yeah, yeah, a bunch yeah. of stuff. Um, funny enough, I've also been in Star Trek, but. Neither here nor there. Mm. This film is discovering John Oldman's history and his origins. And it it it's described as a science fiction film. It's not really, but it also kind of is. And it's a whole debate of whether you believe the story he's telling. And it's such an interesting analysis of how stories are told and how captivating somebody can be as a storyteller to make you believe what sounds like utter bollocks <laughs> and without spoiling the film too much. Cause I think it does have some very interest and it's worth watching. Even knowing this, he claims to be 14,000 years old. So he is essentially like a, a pre, like a Cro-Magnon pre and it's homo sapien. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. And he's been alive this whole time. And he is like, he remembers the Roman Empire. He is what inspired the story of Jesus, all this kind of stuff. And they literally have these archetypal other characters. So you have like the um, very Christian professor, you have the a biologist, an anthropologist, a historian, an archaeologist, all this kind of stuff. And they're all like analyzing his story from a different perspective. And it's, li- it's basically like a big philosophical debate going on for an hour and a half and the questions it comes up with and the answers he has are 
fascinating and interesting. And I remember, I can't remember why I watched it when I watched it, but I just like, oh, I'll just see what's on here. And um, yeah, I'll see what's happening. I have no idea what this film is. It looks like kind of a cool sci-fi kind of thing. Because <laughs> the, the poster for it is a single figure like stood in an eclipse atop the, the surface of the earth in space and all this kind of stuff. You're like, Oh wow. It's some like, he's yeah. Descendant from the, he's an alien. Oh my God. This is... <laughs> it's got, it's got K-Pax vibes, the poster. Well, exactly. I, I personally think everything about this film's marketing is aggressively saying, don't watch this cheap film. Um, <laughs> it's almost <Yeah>. like <laughs> it's, it sounds cool the way the guys are describing it, but I'm also like, nah, it feels cheap, man. I'm a, I should point out, I it's think this a, movie's fantastic. Yeah, it's on a budget and of about $200,000. Yeah, that's the issue. The The way it's so. shot is cheap because it had to be, but doesn't matter because it's fucking engrossing. The marketing, like the poster, is it's fucking 2000s Photoshop, but it doesn't matter because it's fucking cool and it draws you in. But yeah, sorry. Yeah, I I, I think it's it's aggressively saying, I don't think I want to see this. It looks like yeah. it's going to be boring. It's like, you're wrong. You'll be, you'll be pleased to hear, listeners and Tim, who hasn't seen it, it's currently mm. available on Amazon Prime Video, so in the UK. So if you mm. go and check it out there. It also famously has, ready for it, tying back into sequelizers, yeah. a terrible sequel! Yeah. Yay! <laughs> Have you seen um, it, Jack? It is called uh, The Man From Earth Hollow Scene, and it is a big piece of shit. <laughs> so, I kind of want to fix it, if I'm honest. I was going to say... That it's got to be on the list, right? That is that is a bad <laughs> sequel to be fixed in the future. Um, it's fascinating. There's a section on its Wikipedia thing about how, uh, in 2007, so not long after it had come out, um, the one of the producers basically gave a shout out to pirates. Oh yeah, the torrent uh, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, because it had been shared quite mm-hmm. widely on BitTorrent. And basically said, like, yeah, obviously this isn't making us any money, but it's meant that the film has been seen a lot more widely than we would have predicted. What? So please go and buy the DVD now. Yeah, they said it, it didn't make any money anyway. So, and it's not going to make any more money now because it's not a film that's been marketed. So I just want people to see it. So fuck it. And uh, I believe they actively marketed the sequel through torrenting services because they've received such and. Um, mm. Not, yeah. not to not to call out like seventeen or eighteen year old Jack here. That's probably how I watched it back in the day. <laughs> not <laughs> it was that I did the only anything way to like watch that. The fucking thing. Yeah, not that I did anything like that back in my uh, black hat hacker university days or anything at all. No, no, no not at all. Um, I, I may or may not have torrented a few things in my day, but yeah, I think it was one of those things. Like, oh, sure, looks like a sci-fi thing. I'll download that and see what it's like, and had no idea what I was expecting and it really sets up the question of whether you believe him or not and there's a conclusion to the movie that some people think is heavy-handed and a bit like oh yeah okay whatever um but I think it has really interesting things to say and I think it sets up those characters and specifically John the main character in a very interesting way and all this kind of stuff and and going through essentially the history of our species through one person's perspective is fascinating. And if a person did like, like that did exist in real life, it would be such an interesting kind of take on a character. And then Queen plays, who wants to live forever? <laughs> forever. 
Um, I, 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 it was forced into my hands uh, in the 2000s. She doesn't make a sudden rate. It was just fresh. And it was in, I was in America at the time and a friend said, you should watch this and, and actively said the caveat, it looks crap, but it's good. I'm like, okay. And um, the selling point that they got me, I was like, oh, it's um, Bixby. So the Star Trek, like, I said, oh, cool. And, said, and Tony Todd's in it. I said, right, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> I like Tony Todd. We'll go with that. And yeah, I really like it. I think it's a really, really prime example. In a similar way to Tape, there's a Richard Linklater film called Tape, which is just set in one location in a um, in a hotel room, motel room, sorry. And it's Uma Thurman, Ethan Hawke, and uh, Sean, what the fuck is his name, from House? Uh, Robert Sean Leonard. Robert Sean Leonard, thank you very much, yeah. And it's shot on like a camcorder, so it looks cheap, but the performances are so good, the writing is so good that it just captivates you. And same thing here, it is genuinely quite captivating. Um, another one I recommend people watch. Sequel is fucking ass. It's ass, I say. I watched what a terrible fucking title as well. The Man from Earth, Hollow Scene. No. The fucking poster has the same bullshit Photoshop. No it excuse does. in this day and age. Um, <laughs> but none of the another clever writing, obviously, because it's different script, different things entirely. Dumb. And yeah, I, I think it has the same energy as Twelve Angry Men, where you have Twelve Angry Men. We haven't mentioned it was building a pix at one point. Um, Henry, Fon- it's, it's it's about a courtroom and. You know, you have a unanimous jury and they're all decided that this kid is guilty of a crime except for Henry Fonda's character who says, hmm, maybe not. And then they have a debate for hours and hours and hours and all of them change their mind. This kind of thing where it's like everyone has their own standpoint and their own logic and almost in like a witch hunt paranoia kind of way, kind of like the thing also, you end up with this sort of like, well, now I don't know what to fucking believe, and I I don't know what's real anymore. Maybe I have to just fucking shoot you. And it's like, oh, that's kind of ridiculous. It's like, how can you get that ridiculous? Not how can you get that mad? It's like because of mutiny in the bounty, because of like cabin fever, because you can go crazy with as much as I hate to say it. Sometimes the reason that awful, awful things happen in, uh multiple societies is that too many people are debating what could be while what's happening outside is what is you know well let's try this maybe it's like maybe just fucking do something because outside people who don't know what they're talking about are already doing it and then that sways the group and things so yeah i think i think it's genuinely and it is a science fiction just because of the the nature of the discussion but i i think it's it you know when we talked earlier about sci-fi films being good chamber films a lot i think there's a lot of people who'd be like well how are you going to do sci-fi all in one room like there's you know what about like aliens blowing up ships and all this kind of stuff and and it's like no there's a there is a cerebral type of sci-fi that is more interested in ideas that's than my kind of sci-fi tim that's my kind than of shit sci-fi. blowing up yeah your ex machinas your uh man from earth you know where it is about let's take this extraordinary concept and actually think out the implications of it um and i think yeah there there's it's an underserved genre especially like in kind of film and it's something that you know classic star trek did quite well because they would often go like you know i think the um the phrase bottle episode comes from star trek because they were like let's trap the ship in a bottle because <laughs> That way, nobody can get out. We, we, we're only using existing sets, and it's very cheap to do. 
um, and we'll just have fucking Kirk and Spock debate the nature of existence with some godlike alien or whatever. Best episodes ever. Yeah. Not all bottle episodes, some of shit, but you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, there, there, there is a brand of sci-fi that is this kind of thing, and I think it is, like I say, it's underserved and... I, I I'm quite fascinated to see this. I might I may have to track it down because um yeah, it does sound like a fascinating one. It's I um, think you'd like it, Tim. I think you really like think I said, would. Amazon yeah. Prime streaming right now, Tim. It's ninety minutes long. Go yeah. and go yeah. and check it out. I think I a lot of it. our audience would genuinely well initially watching a oh fuck, this looks like it was shot on a <laughs> on a phone. Uh as in like a, a Nokia um back in the day. But after a couple of you know, literally a couple of minutes mm. of the conversations you go okay it, it really draws you in and it gets you engaged i think hmm. and again it comes down to that thing of like if you can get the script really good and the acting and the performance yep, is really good yep. then you don't need the fucking white house being blown up like independence day because the characters reacting to things is all the drama that you need mm. well tim let's move over from intellectual sci-fi to your first pick so from something that looks like it was shot in 1994 to something that was actually shot in 1994. Hey, that's the segue. Well done. He's a professional, for, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, for even less money uh, than The Man from Earth. Um, <laughs> yeah, true. Uh, or actually, I'd probably not at post-production, but uh, certainly when it was shot, it was shot for, here we go, uh, $27,575. <laughs> Uh, which is Clerks. Again, that's a lot of money. Like, in, in real life, I can't imagine mm. having $27,000 in my hand. In the I mean? 90s. In yes. the 90s, yeah. So that's like $50,000 mm. now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but again, back when you had to pay for film to film your film, rather than just shooting it on digital. <laughs> yeah. Took up a lot of money. Uh, yeah, so Clerks, obviously, uh, if people have watched our live stream, we've be, we will have talked about it considerably uh then so i won't go into kind of the, the the good and bad of it but for people who haven't seen it it is kevin smith's first film it's a black and white kind of buddy comedy set in a convenience store and the video store that is next door to it uh and it basically follows the day in the life of two characters who work there and various other characters who kind of intersect with them girlfriends and two stoners who hang out in front of the store deal pot and the various people who come into the store um i wanted to pick this because i wanted to pick something that wasn't uh as we'll get around to with my other pick it's something that is very heightening the claustrophobia for tension's sake and this is kind of claustrophobic as well but it's not trying to up use that to build tension it's using it to build ennui almost <laughs> um it is it is the feeling of being trapped not in an uh, an aggressive way but in a i've put myself in this corner and just realized that i it, getting out is going to take a little bit more effort than i kind of want to put in um it, it's about a character you know the main character uh of dante hicks is someone who's basically resentful of the fact that he's working at a convenience store even though that is his lot that he has picked in life uh and he's doing nothing to kind of extricate himself from that situation um and 
so the fact that the entire film is kind of limited to that location is very deliberate because that's how he feels in life he feels like this job that he hates that is way below you know his his sort of uh, what he thinks he's capable of takes up the entirety of his life um there are moments when the film leaves that location uh they go to the roof of the convenience store <laughs> to play to play roller hockey and there's also a sequence where they go to a wake except you never actually see them at the wake you see them in the car going to the wake and then coming back from the wake having caused a scene basically mm -hmm. um and a lot of this was uh budgetary reasons basically we've said kevin kevin smith financed this film by maxing out different credit cards um he would he would get a credit card uh and then pretend to be his own manager when they rang up to do a credit check and say like yeah he earns way more than he actually does yeah. you know <laughs> he's fine give him give him a huge credit uh, Christ, how did the housing and... crisis happen yeah um and you know the reason that they they uh so the, one of the first things that happens in the film is that Dante tries to open up the shutter, the windows at the front of the store, and realizes that someone's jammed gum into the padlock that holds it closed. And so he has to put up a sign that says, I assure you we're open. That's because they were always shooting when the store was shut. And so they couldn't actually put the shutters up because otherwise yep. people would come in, you know, and and try and try and go to the store, you know. I, I've experienced that on many independent fucking shoots. Yeah. We were shooting in Norwich literally a couple of weeks ago in a shop called Regen Gaming. And a guy was staring in the window watching and put off my actors. And I sort of went over and said, Hey, so, so you're opening today? And I said, No, the store's closed. And it's Sunday with the store's closed anyway. And Sunday, and he's, Oh, God. And he walks off. I'm like, There's a sign on the floor that says fucking closed. What, what, what? He <laughs> stood there for 20 minutes. Inside, Matthew. Yeah, that, that's the, that, the fucking public, man. Yep. A bunch of savages in this town. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah. And so a lot of it, it was budgetary reasons. This was the one location they could afford to film because it was a location that. Kevin Smith essentially controlled yeah, uh, yeah. because he was doing the same job as Dante Hicks. Um, and, and I'm sure we'll get into this in our, in our Kevin Smith discussion, which will have happened by now for people <laughs> listening to this. Kevin Smith is not a talented director in terms of his shot selection, his camera placement and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. Famously doesn't move the camera in this movie. He is just yes. still put a camera on a fucking bookshelf and, yeah <laughs> there you go yeah there's two characters yeah um and he uh but he is a very good dialogue writer and you know this film in a way it's it sort of makes it's a it's a film where kevin smith's lack of directing chops actually kind of works in favor for it it turns a bug into a feature because because the camera never moves and it's just these lockdown shots of just people talking, it emphasizes that feeling of being closed off. And you feel you feel the the closeness of the shelves of the convenience store either side of you, you know, and there's, you know, these shots where it's it's down and it's a woman who's just going through all the cartons of milk to try and find one with a later <laughs> date on it. And you're right down there with her. And it, you know, it does it makes the convenience store feel like this very oppressive environment that you just can't escape and there's no there's no energy here there's no dynamism to the shots and there's no you know it feels like it's just draining the life out of you as it does for these characters you know and the few times that 
they get to escape that where you go outside and you hang out with Jay and Silent Bob and it's a little bit more not that the camera moves as Jack said you know the camera's still locked down but the characters are moving around a bit more and it creates that distinction between when you're inside the shop you're trapped not not even just in this location you're trapped behind the counter serving these people they come in they say their lines you give them whatever they want their paper or their cigarettes and then they go out and you're still trapped here and it's a it's a very kind of unique uh, kind of mood that it's trying to summon and i think it does it actually pretty successfully for someone's first film for someone who admittedly is not a good director (laughs) um i think it it manages to turn all of those things in its favor and the the locked down nature of it really creates a it all feeds into what the film is trying to say uh essentially and uh yeah that that is why it was one of my choices it's it is a good choice tim i think it really is i think it's kevin smith is one of those very weird uh anomalies in that he was in the right place at the right time uh, with Link later and stuff, I, was, he, like, he saw, I don't know which film he saw. It was Slacker. Slacker, thank you very much, yeah. Yeah, he'd, he's talked about it a lot. I've heard that story quite a few times <laughs> on podcasts over the years. There we go, yeah. So, yeah, he's like, oh, you can do it. You Anyone can make a film. And he did. Mm. And then people watch <laughs> Kevin Smith's movie and go, oh, fuck, anyone can make a film. Yeah. Um, mm. And the interesting thing to me is, for us, and I'm, I'm going to make it. I'm, make a bit of a bold statement now, for Gen X and for Millennials, I think this movie speaks so clearly to the, that sort of group. And yes, maybe old generations too in that regard. Mm. I don't think a younger generation can relate in the same way. Now, that's not saying they can't enjoy it, can't appreciate it, and can't get anything out of it. Of course not. Everyone's got Kids these days haven't worked a day in their life. Right, <laughs> no, I, I think <laughs> the nature... Working from home, it's basically a holiday, isn't it? No, um, no. I th- I think the nature of of everything is so much more stressful, hectic, and the idea that in in the, in the past that you could just waltz along and say, "Hi, I'm a disenfranchised kind of bored kid." Uh, it's just expected that I'll work in a shop. Is that okay? I can work here? Yeah, you can do a couple of hours, night shifts, and you know I'll give you the responsibility, lock up the whole shop mm. on your own, that kind of shit. All right, cool. I hate this job. I want to hang out with my friends. I want to do something with my life. What am I doing? Oh god, I don't think. I don't think Gen Z has that fucking choice. If you have that kind of job, it goes to a machine. And I don't want to say like an old man, mm. but that's self-service does mm. that shit. We don't have that kind of, you know, we have people pissing in bottles and cages. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the, you know, the realistic environment. I, I don't, I know there are prime examples like, well, hang on, hang on a minute. I've got a cousin who's 17 years old and, you know, she works in a shop and she's just as disenfranchised. And mm. I know there will be examples. I'm just saying en masse this spoke to and 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 resonated so much with a certain group that it was like yeah it, it shot to a huge cult classic because of that because then everyone was thinking oh fuck that's me i work in a store i work in a restaurant i feel like i'm going nowhere it's like, and then the character saying well, what are you fucking doing about it it's like yeah yeah i probably should do something about it <laughs> and in the old in the original ending no because <laughs> you get shot <laughs> and then the original cut was like it's a great movie Terrible fucking ending. So they changed it. Um, but yes, I, I think Clerks is a wonderful choice because, as, as Tim said, 
it, it, it goes to the roof. It goes outside to multiple different characters. Oh, fuck anything that moves. Um, <laughs> it goes in a car to an entirely different location. And yet it's definitely a chamber piece. Absolutely a fucking chamber piece. Um, and a really good one, in my opinion. I think, uh, yeah, uh, Kevin Smith is not the most dynamic of directors. Absolutely. But his locked off camera makes this feel more like a CCTV style prison. I mean, there's so many cues that are so very. And the fact that it's black and white as well. Exactly, yeah. Another budgetary kind of kind of combines with the the lack of camera movement there to make it feel even more constrained and Mm -hmm. repressive. Yeah, if if you were making this film today, and and I don't think you would, because like Uh, Matt says, it's incredibly. Of its time, isn't, yoga isn't Kevin Smith? Isn't Kevin Smith trying to do that right now? It has done. Well, it, yeah. yeah, but I think if you if you were Clark, making this Clark's film today, coming soon, it would be it would almost be found footage, and you do it as the uh, the security cameras. Yeah, probably, very probably. You know, um, and Clerks Two did trade yeah. up uh, the the convenience store for Rosario Dawson. <laughs> yes, she's definitely a trader. Uh, no, for, for the for movie, movie, yeah, movie, movie, movie yes. burgers, the and then, and then Clerks Three is in the offing, which is going to be back to the quick stop. Yeah, I, I when I first saw this film, I was literally I was like a seventeen, eighteen yeah, year old yeah. who was working in a convenience store <laughs> where at, I was seventeen and I had locking up responsibility and like sorting out the safe and stuff like Fucking that. Mad. So yeah, which. I definitely shouldn't have had it. <laughs> but it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's it I think definitely kids are being pushed upon to do that sort of stuff now. But the workplace is so like, oh, I'm 32 and I'm living at home with my parents. I need a job. Yeah. I guess I'll have to go work in a looks at the thing. Convenience store. It's like mm. yeah, it's supposed to be a frustrating. Mean, it, it's a different message now when I'm a 17 year old, I'm kind of trying to get like a, just a small, simple job. Mm. My parents told me that they did this when they were at my age. It's like, oh, I'm sorry, you can't do that. Why is that? 35 year olds are still working in those jobs. And it's like, yeah. Oh, shit. Shouldn't they have moved on to the bigger, better things? Apparently, yeah, but system failed everyone. Yeah, they should have, but that's not how the world works. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I think it's a fascinating time capsule piece, but um, not any less relatable, but certainly very interesting. Matt, let's come back oh, around shit, to you yeah, for something me. that's equally as universal. Everybody's experienced stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we've all been there. My ex picks his mother. Mother! Exclamation mark by uh, Darren Aronofsky. Um, controversial film. <laughs> the film Aronofsky is set entirely controversial. <laughs> I don't believe it. <laughs> Disappears up his own arse, you say? Yeah. <laughs> it sort of made its budget back. Its budget of thirty million. <laughs> um, I-, I like Mother a lot. I think it's a great movie. Uh, I think it's really tense and stressful and uh, very claustrophobic. And it is set in one house. Entirely in one house. That sort of does the entire story of the Bible and all of human history. But that's not the point. Welcome to Aronofsky, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Yeah. So basically the story is is, uh, fucking magnificent. And it stars Jennifer Lawrence and Javier Bardem. And they live in this house. And Javier Bardem, Bardem uh, is a poet who has writer's block, basically. And he's like, oh, shit, I don't know what I'm doing. And um, he has a wife who's his muse, and she wakes up and just wanders around the house. It's all very calm to start with. You can see outside the house, the, the lush sort of garden area, um, but you never really leave the house. And then suddenly, 
there's a man in the house. I was like, why is there a man in our house? And I was like, oh, he's my friend. Come here. He's, he's, yeah, he's great. And then tell you, the man brings his weird wife with him. And, and his like, weird wife, yeah. Yeah. And then his, the, the, the man and his wife's two kids turn up and have a fight on the floor. And one of them gets killed. Like, what the fuck just happened? And it's, and, um, and it's the Gleason brothers. It's, it's literally Ian Gleason. Like, yeah, literally a pair of Gleasons. Um, and when you don't know what the film's about, you're like, I think I see where this is going. This is going to be fucking insane if this is where this is going. And it goes there unabashedly. So basically, it tells the entire story of the Bible from the man uh, being Ed Harris, i.e. Adam, and Javier Bardem is God. And Jennifer Lawrence is basically Mother Earth. Mm. She, it, she built that Mother. house. She decorated the house. And that's not a load-bearing thing. Don't sit on it. That is a thing that comes up so many times in that fucking movie. <laughs> don't, please don't sit on that. It's not load-bearing. And um, the more people that trash her house, and she's like, you need to just get the fuck out. Please get the fuck out of my house. I don't want these people in my house. Said, and now have it by them. It's like, but they're my friends. They're the best thing ever. Don't you like them? It's like, no, I don't like them. I don't like these things that you've brought into my house. And the idea, like, you know, literally, like, God is putting humans on Earth. And Earth's like, can you get these fucking things out? And the film goes wildly off kilter when a baby is born and they're also all the humans are so in the house are so desperate to see this baby that Jennifer Lawrence has been carrying pregnant through this movie and it's like and, and I'm, I'm going to tell you this now because I like this movie I recommend this movie people should watch this movie it is a hard watch it is a it's Aronofsky folks it, yeah it's yeah you don't just like i'll put it on the background while i wash up no 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 no. don't do that no um i i yeah it's 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 violent and visceral and shows all of the worst elements of humanity and then literally as the film gets to its peak war and revelations happens in her house she is trying to get through the house and literally bombs going off and there's like you know sandbags and shit people getting killed all around it and it is just a mess fucking cannibalism and knife wounds and it's fucking so visceral. the ending yeah. of that movie is mental like it, yeah just a sensory barrage it's just madness it's a tour de force of just uncomfortable trench warfare madness and and ends in the most beautifully almost um speaking of astrophysics the nature of the repetition of cycles and and you yeah. know Big Bang and explosion and resetting and and yeah, just just a magnificent concept, a really high concept execution of this thing. Um, but again, it's not just this is the Garden of Eden. It's not just this is Earth. It's all of it. And it, and it, and 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 this is what I was trying to say about the idea of that this is actually yes a, a relatable thing because during the pandemic we have been living out our own fucking chamber pieces. We've all been in our own houses and like our stories have been for a period of time, us staring at the fucking walls or our partners or our kids or whoever the fuck we live share. Uh, 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 if, if indeed we do share the house with anybody, if it's just mm. you on your own, for example, going quietly mad, discussing big things, small things, being terrified of this virus, terrified of other people, watching people die and just like, what the fuck is going on? And not knowing how to process it, that kind of stuff. And, and mother does it in the same way. And again, the thing that, that grounds you, that really chambers you into it, other than the fact that, you know, it warps and shifts and moves, 
is this house. The house is still it. The house doesn't. It's not. You can't. You know. She doesn't want to tear it down, build it up. It's her fucking house, and people are trashing it. And again, the, the environmental message is obviously there as well. Um, so yeah, Mother is a, is is a is a great film in my opinion. I know a lot of people don't like it for a lot of reasons, and the fact it's got sixty, what was it, sixty eight, sixty seven percent, or whatever it was, sixty eight. Yeah, yeah. Not, I'm not fucking surprised because it went over a lot of people's heads, and there were a lot of uh, detractors. But I thought it was very clever and did very well in my opinion. It got a lot of uh, award nominations and things in certain places. Very divisive, but yeah, I had to I had to knock off Twelve Angry Men, one of the greatest movies of all time, <laughs> to talk about Mother. Because of the way that it basically uses the camera, uses the space, and that it was rehearsed in a warehouse with like a sketched out floor plan of what this house would look like over and over rehearsals, just get an idea of how this thing would move through. Not like in some way you rehearse like a one take sort of thing. So you mm. get an idea for the space. <laughs> so when the space you're evolves. Just, you're making me think of the uh, the bit in The Founder where they uh, designed oh. the McDonald's. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in the park. Yeah, exactly. Or the basketball court, wherever it is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, or Dogville, all of Dogville, which is a weirdly yes. chamber film, but it isn't because it's in a town. Um, yes. Interestingly enough, you mentioned awards and award nominations for Mother. It has some of, like, the Wikipedia list of nominations and accolades is one of the weirdest lists I think I've ever seen for a film. It's so, all over the shop. Uh, they get uh, a couple of Razzie nominations for Worst yeah, Director, Razzies. Worst Actress, and Worst Supporting Actor, which is mad, because kind of the performances are... I mean, they're, they're quite dramatic and over the top, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah. It was also nominated for Most Underrated Movie of the Year at the Golden Schmoes, which, of course, is uh, JoeBlow.com. Um it won trippiest movie of the year at the Golden Schmoes. <laughs> I was like, I guess so, yeah. Um, Jennifer Lawrence won a few Best Actress awards and stuff like that. And then it's nominated for like a Best Horror Movie. And I'm like, I, mm, I guess. I'd say it's a horror film kind of. Yeah, yeah. I'd say it's drama. Yeah. Um, it has. Uh, it was nominated for the Golden Lion at Venice. <laughs> it was. It was. And uh, my favourite one here is, well, two of them. From the Alliance of Women Film Journalists, we have Most Egregious Age Difference Between the Lead and the Love Interest Award. <laughs> <laughs> An award that has been nominated and won many times, as you can imagine, yeah, in Hollywood. And, of course, the Actress Most in Need of a New Agent Award. Jennifer Lawrence was also <laughs> nominated there as well. Oh, my God. If that doesn't sum up that movie, I don't know what does. Jennifer Lawrence got a weird career, really, yeah, really fucking weird career. Yeah, she'd be the next big thing, and then she sort of was, and then she sort of wasn't. Mm. And she is uh, all within the space of about three years. years. Yeah, and she's just turned thirty-one because she is like three and a half weeks older than me. So there you go. Mm. Again, Dude. at time of recording, I, I am already thirty-one <laughs> by the time you're hearing this, listeners. So. So yeah, it, it is a very divisive film. A lot of people will listen to this list and go, fuck off, why the hell did you pick this? But like, again, for the nature of Chamber Pieces, it's a talking point and I wanted to, I really want to talk about it. And I know a lot of people who genuinely say, oh, I, I, I think I know that um, Ashton, Stuart Ashton really likes it a lot and my wife likes it. We talk about it a lot and things. And we go, this is, she loves Aronofsky in general. Um, and I know a lot of people who go, I hate that film. So, and, and that even that is bisected. 
I hate that film. Why do you hate it? Oh, it's just pretentious, stupid bullshit. It's it's over. It's up its own asshole. And why do you hate it? I can't fucking welcome, watch it. It's too to painful. Aronofsky. It's too. It's too. It's too uncomfortable to watch. I don't need to see a baby pissing itself and then dying. That's horrible. And it's like, oh, okay. Um, yeah, it's it, there's there's a lot of reasons to not watch this movie. But at the same time, if you're looking for something that's genuinely going to challenge you, whether you like it or not, it's well made and constructed. So yeah. I think it's a good one. And then the chamber piece film with this like, oh, I'm going to make my own confi confined constraints to make this a difficult thing for me to shoot in every aspect. Then, yeah, I think it's definitely got to be mentioned. So transitioning from mother. <laughs> um, and, you know, the worst elements of humanity. Jack, do you have any worst elements of humanity you'd like to talk about? <laughs> uh, nope. All good people in this film. It's a lovely on both sides. Both sides. Both sides. <laughs> full of good people, as as we know from the former president of the United States. It's a film about neo Nazis, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I want to talk about 2015's Green Room because Jeremy Saulnier is one of my favorite directors mm. of the modern era. I fucking love pretty much everything he's done. I have very very much enjoyed. I've talked about Blue Ruin on the show before yeah. and how much I went in completely blind, went to watch that at Cinema City here in Norwich because they were doing a limited showing. And I was like, sure, yeah, let's go see that. I have no idea what this is about. And that film took me in so many different directions and surprised me so much. I was just completely absorbed and captivated from that film. And I've been a fan of Saulnier ever since. Um, and of course, the star of that film, Macon Blair, is also one of the guys in this, and he's kind of like the the co-writer, childhood friend of of Solnier, the director as well. Um, he also did Hold the Dark on Netflix, which I think is very good. But I think Green Room and Blue Ruin, and particularly Green Room, are fantastic. And it features a spectacular central performance by the late great Anton Yelchin, uh, and one of the best Patrick Stewart performances, and he, so he barely evil. says a word. Evil in this He's film. so terrifying. Um, again, I guess it's a horror film. I guess, like, so it's, it's yeah, a weird thing to define. Great. I would think of it more as like a kind of thriller, drama yeah. kind of thing. And for those of you who don't know about it, I'm, again, this is one of the things where my picks are weirdly a bit more obscure than usual. I'm usually the kind of most mainstream of the three of us. But this is uh, a story essentially told in one music venue, which happens to be a neo-Nazi skinhead bar and in, in Portland, Oregon, in America. And this, these, this punk band who we follow, Anton Yelchin, the main character, um, Pat is the bass player for this punk band, and they're not neo-Nazis and they play um, neo-Nazis fuck off or have that song by the, by the dead Kennedys. Nazi song. punks fuck off. Nazi yeah, punks fuck off. Thank yeah. you very much. Um, they play that song to a, a bunch of booze from a bunch of neo-Nazis and then they witness the aftermath of a murder. And you're like, <laughs> oh, oh, it's not just like they're horrible pieces of shit. They're murderous, horrible pieces of shit as well. And they've taken it to the next level. And it basically escalates from there in the the murderers and the Nazis trying to cover up their murder and trying to get away with it. And the the witnesses that is Anton Yelchin, Pat, his character, and, and his bandmates essentially 
running around trying to not get murdered by neo-Nazis. And it's called Green Room because it's mostly set in the green room of this venue. And that's where they witness everything happening backstage behind this little venue. And as a guy who has played in bands and a lot of very small <laughs> venues, you see some horrible shit in, in green rooms and, <laughs> and, and backstage <laughs> toilets and stuff like that. But I can safely say I've never witnessed a neo-Nazi murder, thankfully. Um, but yeah, it is captivating, fantastic storytelling and filmmaking it's another 90 minute kind of blast through you can you can watch it pretty easily kind of thing except much like mother there is um <laughs> there's, there's some hard to watch bits there's, there's some gruesome yeah. bits with the dog there's some there's some chopping off of limbs and unpleasant blah, uh some gory bits and stuff but yeah the performances are fantastic the way it's shot and lit is incredible um and yeah it's one of my favorite films of the 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 2010s for sure Mm. and basically love everything about it from its anti-neo-nazi message to the cinematography to the performance to the music and everything in between to the bass player because you love bass players and the main character is a (laughs) bass player thank you very much (laughs) yeah um imogen poots who plays this kind of she just sort of happens to be there and is the friend of the girl who gets murdered and and is trapped with the band but isn't really kind of with them. Mm-hmm. Her performance is so great in this. She's an actress that I think is kind of quite underrated and she's just yeah. so feral in this. It's terrific. Um, and yeah, just the one of the tensest films I've ever seen, I think, uh, just in terms of the the claustrophobia of it. Like you say, Jack, the the limited location and just the how awful uh Patrick Stewart's character is <laughs> and just how just how business like he is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In, in terms isn't. of his like This isn't their first like, fucking rodeo is murdering yes. people and getting away with it. Yeah. 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 Nazis and murder and drugs and he's announcing it like it's a fucking church hall like I'm terribly sorry. We're going to have to stop the performance today. I'll make it up to you <laughs> next week. Now to murder those kids. And I was like, what the fuck is going on, man? Um, and again, it, it's 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 distributed by A24. Classic seal of quality at the minute, A24. <laughs> there um, you go. But yeah, I can only echo what's been said. This film is great. Um, it is one of those beautiful examples of like, kind of like Clerks. It's like, definitely a chain piece. Absolutely a chain piece. I mean, it's got tons of sequences not in that room and even in the woods. And it's like, yeah, but chamber piece. Yeah. yeah. The, fact, it's, the it's... fact that the green room in the venue is so integral to the overall oh, tone yeah. and yeah. theme mm. of the movie makes it a chamber piece in my eye. Well, even, even, I, I even would argue we do even when go it isn't. Outside and, yeah. yeah, even when you're outside, you feel tightly enclosed. And again, having been to, well, spent a lot of time in, in Portland and Oregon. Uh, I thought, I thought then you were we'll... about saying skinhead bars because you're a bald man now. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, them woods, them woods are deep in in Oregon, mm. and uh, I'm walking around thinking, "Oh wow, I've seen my first chipmunk. That's cool." And thinking, "Wait, somebody lives in a weird shack here." Okay, I've realised that I'm actually all on my own now, and oh god, I've made a terrible mistake. Um, foolish boy from England. Um, yeah, so green room is it's like, like, oh yeah, well the Nazis will always be in this place. It's like, nah, they're going to be places that can be tight knit little communities where you don't see things going. You're never going to mm. be missed, and never going to be. You would just be gone and no one will know where to look for you because, you know, as I say, where are you going to start looking? So, yeah, terrifying, but 
Amazing movie. Speaking of terrible fucking people. Oh, fucking hell. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, so my my final pick is uh, is Hard Candy, the 2005 thriller. We're going for dark subject matter here, guys. <laughs> it's gone, yeah, I, well, it kind of it's inheritance chamber it's, films. Yeah, it's very. I can't. I'm trying to think of many chamber films that are like happy pieces. <laughs> uh... It's it's the it's the kind of the mm. the nature of a chamber film lends itself to horror, to thriller, to sci-fi yeah and kind of either cerebral or dark sci-fi yeah so it kind of makes sense that most of our films have been of that kind of nature yeah uh when your cheeriest film involves someone having sex with a corpse you know you know you're (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh yeah so hard candy for people who aren't familiar with it uh stars uh elliot page and patrick wilson and it uh, is essentially about, it's mostly set in one house. There's a bit at the beginning uh, at a, a sort of a diner, although actually, fun fact, that diner is just the house that they were filming in. Redressed. Redressed yeah. to nice. be a diner. <laughs> nice. I love that. Uh, yeah. Um, and it is essentially a confrontation between a 14-year-old uh, girl and a paedophile and yep. like the, we said cheery subject matter yeah cheery subject matter um and the 14 year old girl is a lot more prepared uh than the man who has basically been kind of grooming her on the internet uh is initially prepared for um and it is it's it's cat and mouse Essentially, or cat and cat, really. Um, it's cat, cat and mouse. And cat just the mouse, the some mm-hmm. mouse thinks he's in charge. Um, yes, I, I think that that it's uh, the way it's been described. There's a lot of actual allegor- uh, analogies in the in the film with Red Riding Hood, except mm. what if Red Riding Hood had a gun? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What if Red Riding Hood had no need for the the woodcutter or yeah. grandma? And uh, to really drill at home, she literally has the red hoodie, like exactly, literally yeah. red yes. riding hood, playing with that kind of, yes, twisting that. On Although its head kind of thing. apparently that was actually an orange hoodie uh, when they were filming, and they color corrected it to be red oh, afterwards really? when they realised that, that's that interesting. Makes sense. That's funny. Yeah. Um, and it's to me, it's kind of the an archetypical chamber piece because it is all plays out in this very. A very kind of clean, uh, very aesthetically pleasing uh, house that this guy has got, and it is just about the nature of power shifting back and forth between these two characters, and how one person thinks they're in control of the situation, mm. and then they realise they're not, and then how that shifts back and forwards, and you know something happens. And that person is no longer, you know, the, the the thing that they thought that they had made sure couldn't go wrong does go wrong. And then it turns around again. And it's it's just about the power dynamic between these two characters. And the the cast is like seven people and five of those are barely in it. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's it, Sandra Oh is is credited as like, you know, fairly high up in the in the well 
the cast list is very short, mm. but she was cre- prominently like listed among the cast when it was being marketed, and she's in it for about two and a half minutes, if that. As mm-hmm. as the neighbor who comes and knocks on the door, and it's like, that's it. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then you've basically got like the people at the diner at the start that they don't really interact with. Uh, Jeff, who is a Patrick Wilson's character, his ex girlfriend, who is mostly on the phone. And that's it, basically. And one so woman is... is credited and she's in photos. Like, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I feel like the, the previous victim, essentially, that she is avenging. And it's like, yeah. Um, yeah. So it's when we talk about limited cast, you know, in a chamber film, it's basically just these two characters. Yes. Um, and it is near constant tension. Um, because to start with, you're incredibly worried for, um, Elliot's character, Haley, because you're like, Oh God, what, what am I about to watch here? Essentially. And then fear of, of like, am I, Am I literally going to watch? What am I going to see here? And and because mm. you know, it, I think it's got like a fifteen or eighteen rating or whatever, isn't? So you mm. do, you, Tim. What am I about to see? <laughs> yeah, and then it very quickly kind of switches on a on a dime, and mm. and you go, oh no, this is a very different kind of film. Um, thank God. <laughs> um, yeah. but it's also incredibly like chilling in its own way. Uh, and I think the director, um. Uh, David Slade and the the writer Brian Nelson have gone on to say basically both of the characters are kind of sociopaths. Oh yeah, entirely. Um, and Haley, the character, has probably killed a fair amount of men. Mm. Some would argue with reason. Um, yeah. But also because that's something she's capable of, basically. Um. And it's incredibly well performed. It's was wasn't the first thing that Elliot Page was in, but it was kind of the breakout role. Uh, she was in like eighteen or something shit when they started filming, when wasn't she? Uh, uh, seven. She's she at the time. Sorry. Yes. Yeah, we should say Elliot Page now uses he him pronouns. At the sorry. time, was uh, was not out as trans. Mm. Um. Yeah. So he was seventeen at the time, playing yeah. a fourteen-year-old. Yeah. And it's had had some kind of previous recognition for I think like a like a a notable young person role in a small film kind of thing, but this was kind of what got them on the radar. Yeah. Um, and then within a couple of years, they were doing X Men: The Last Stand and yeah. Juno. Like a couple of years, literally later. within eighteen months, you have Hard Candy, The Last Stand, where obviously Kitty Pride. Not a huge mm. character in that film, but still like a, a fan favorite kind of standout yeah. moment and that yeah. kind of thing. And then Juno was kind of the big breakout moment for yes. Elliot being like, oh my God, yeah. they can be a lead in the film. Like, this is incredible. And yeah, yeah. I, going back and watching Hard Candy after I'd seen Juno like, yes. <laughs> was quite like, oh <laughs> shit, <laughs> okay. And, and it's fascinating, like the kind of parallels that there are in those two films of, um, Juno's relationship with uh, Jason Bateman's character, whose name I can't remember in Juno. Oh yeah, um, yeah. where Mark he's like, "Oh, I'm Juno. this, yeah, I'm this, I'm this cool old older dude, and I'll introduce you to music and all this kind of mm-hmm. stuff." Yeah, um, weirdly predatory. Yes, and 
Patrick Wilson's character Jeff is essentially the same thing. He's he's kind of playing it off as like almost like a kind of self-aware pedophile in like how mm-hmm. he's acting with her. Mm-hmm. Um and this kind of flirtatious and it starts off with you seeing some of their online chat from beforehand and seeing like that kind of behavior. Um it's it's the classic deception of and it's written perfectly in that regard of Oh, it's just chivalry. Is she, he's just being really polite and treating her like an adult. It's like, yes, that's that's what's outwardly being shown. But yeah. it's, it's fucking grooming is what it is. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you're so grown up for your age. You know, I feel like yeah. I can talk to you like you're a grown up. It's yeah. like, yeah. Instant red yeah. flag predatory language. Yeah. Um, and there, for people who haven't seen it, there is an inc- <laughs> one of the scenes is uh, Haley. Uh, as far as you're aware when you're watching it <laughs> yeah. castrating Jeff uh, and then it later turns out with surgical that, imagery yeah that that is not actually what, what has happened and obviously it doesn't it's not super graphic but there are moments where you're like holy shit and um, I remember reading um, under the production it was like under the production name of like Snip Snip or that was an early yes. early like production yeah. name for it or something yeah. like that which is yeah. a fucking terrible name for a movie just for now yeah Hard Candy's a weird one as well, to be fair. Hard Candy's a really weird title, mm. yeah. Um, but yeah, and it's, you know, it does, it manages to put you into the the position where you almost feel sorry for Jeff at certain points. You kind of think, just put him out of his misery and kill him. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's an interesting thing. Okay, I'm going to get very political for a second here. All right. I don't it's like inter- pedophiles. I said it. It's a bold <laughs> statement. What? I'm just putting it out there. It's interesting how throughout time the threat to children has always been the rallying cry. Uh, from like witch hunts to when uh, as in like, please think of the children. Mm, quote, exactly, yes. Helen Lovejoy. Yeah. Yeah. But also nowadays you have so many people like with anti-vaxxers and and various <laughs> QAnon motherfuckers, and it always whittles down to a very you know, it's 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 heightened bullshit it's nonsense it's dangerous but the thing they twist people on the thing they get you with is but it supports pedophiles and you go well i don't support pedophiles so i definitely believe you're right and that's oh, the thing god and, the, and the, so and the anti-mask people saying that people using masks to hide their identity means that human trafficking of children for as sex workers yeah. is easier i'm like mm. that is such f- a fucking reach yeah. and you've got people in like town meetings in like the local mm. parish or whatever yeah. the equivalent is in america crying legit actual crying because they believe that people wearing masks in supermarkets means more pedophiles are going to traffic children around america yeah like, mm. and that's you know that's that's terrifying stupid nonsense that's <clears throat> but it's it's preying on a fear it's preying on something yeah. that is actually yeah, genuinely absolutely. earnestly a, a arguably noble thing you should want to protect the innocence of children and mm. that's what this movie does really interesting because and the reason bringing that was because as tim mentioned you do get to the point of like oh well this you know deeply disturbed human is still a person and he's being tortured and then you think this is where the language comes from about the torture and the, mm. and the castration because that is exactly what people say it's like well they should go to prison no fuck that they should be hung and they should be fed their own cocks mm. it's always this very graphic violent language and so when you see this thing you go I kind of don't want to see this now. It's too much. But there is an interpretation of the film, which is that Haley isn't real. 
she is almost like this this, oh, this vengeful spirit force, as it were, in that you know she's too in control, she's too wily, she's too sociopathic, so too. How mm. can she be real? That kind of thing, and obviously, like, well, because it's a story, motherfucker. That it's fine, <laughs> you can relate to that. But mm. it, the idea that you know, in the same way that um, uh, Godzilla can be manifest as this, you know, nature's vengeance upon man, mm. or you know, encroaching but on. But he's science. also a big lizard. But he's also a big lizard, <laughs> and so thing the same thing. She's the spirit of vengeance as well as a, a, a little girl. It's like, well, what, what are you? What are you really? You can't mm. just be the. You have to be some force because. Otherwise, that's terrifying. It's like, no, because people are pushed too far. That's what happens. But the point I'm trying to get to is a lot of these films, because of the nature of the chamber piece, because of the nature of the chamber films in general, are difficult watches. But all of them, fuck me, they're thought-provoking, and they give you so much to talk about. And as Tim mentioned, you end up these weird moments like, God, just, just, I know, I know why you're doing it, and and I get it, and and mm. your reasoning is there, but just, just, just end it for God's sake. I can't. Yeah, I can't. And then every moment you have that thought starting to creep in, it then it snaps you back, and you realise like that he would kill her the second that That's he had the a chance. Yeah. Basically, he is, yes, yes. Put him yeah. down, but also he he is going to end her if he can. And at the mm. same time, what's to say what he had planned or whatever was going to take place wouldn't be infinitely fucking worse. And you'd be praying mm. for him to stop and be brutalized. And we talk about this in, the, in another one of our live streams, the idea of uh, Park Chanuk's vengeance trilogy, that vengeance is kind of pointless when it's visited upon you. Yep. You think you want to mm. see it, but then when it's visited upon someone, you're like, I kind of don't have the stomach for this. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's basically saying like, uh, because a lot of people would be like, oh yeah, you know, like, like you say, like, oh, yeah, we should string them up and, you know, cut off their cock and feed it to them kind of thing. A Mussolini, like, if you will. Yeah, and it's like, okay, watch that happen. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, oh, actually, I'm not. Yeah. So, oh, like, I don't know what I want to happen, but this is this is making me uncomfortable. And it's like, yeah, it should fucking do. And that's, that's um, a good thing, because that triggers you as an audience member. That reminds you that you're fucking human, that you are not yes. one of these sociopaths, that you are not identifying with either character even though one is definitely more righteous than the other and it's mm. like yeah but i don't want i i couldn't do this and it's like good you passed the test yes ah <laughs> oh. so a very tense fraught film <laughs> yeah. uh, amongst many tense fraught films imagine trying to marathon these motherfuckers Oof, god good luck. yeah and that interestingly, like most of them are pretty short. Yeah, um, I said I both. Both my examples are ninety minutes. Clerks is ninety minutes. Yeah, Hard Candy is a hundred minutes. Uh, hundred and five. Yeah. yeah. So a Page of Madness is an hour long. Yeah. Mother is the longest. Monthly. Mother probably is. Yeah, it's yeah. Aronofsky. It's Aronofsky. Oh. It's four hours it's long. Two, it's two hours long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's half an hour longer than the the other ones. But even then, yeah, the challenge will always run its course. Mm. So you will end up going, kind of gone a bit too long now. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so you could watch all of these in a, in a day. Wow, it fucking would be, hell. It would, be a, it would be a tense and traumatic day. I would, yeah. say, I would say Clerks and The Man from Earth are probably the easiest watches there. Okay, mm. Bookend them. Bookend, yeah. bookend with that. Yeah, do the shit sandwich <laughs> thing, where it's like, <laughs> ease yourself in with Clerks. And then watch. I, I finished with Clerks. 
<laughs> maybe finish with Clerks. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Either way, don't don't marathon these films. It's the only you one that ends on an actual exhaust yourself. Upbeat note, I think. <laughs> unless unless you watch the original version and oh well then yeah yeah precisely yeah there you go yeah add the depressing but. ending there as well but yeah we recommend all of these films to not watch in a short span of time but to watch in general like i said the man from earth is one of the least known on the list it's currently available on amazon streaming uh in the uk uh check out services like just watch you can basically just plug a movie into that and and find out what streaming services available and all that kind of stuff mm. uh, i know quite a few of these are available and i think clerks is available on netflix at the moment because a lot of the kevin smith stuff is coming through on netflix uh thanks to the jay and silent bob reboot that recently came on there and all that mm. kind of stuff his kind of like entire discography is through mm. there all that kind of stuff so yeah go and check them out because we recommend them all pretty much and uh, as you said, Matt, Page of Madness is available on YouTube, right? So yeah, we can uh, easily find that, chuck it in, and spend an hour of your life enjoying a film from 1926. How often can you say you've done that? <laughs> Literally approaching its 100-year anniversary. Mad. Yeah. That is mad. Is that the oldest film we've talked about on this show ever? I think it might be. It's going to take some beating. <laughs> we've talked about the 50s and the 40s and... We talked about Metropolis and stuff. But it's like... uh, I talked about Dr. Caligari, and that's 1920. I've talked about ah. the Golem, and I want to say it's... I've also talked about Voyage Don La Lune, which is... Uh... Well, fuck you, Matthew. That, that's 1902. Because <laughs> I, I know Metropolis is 1927, and this that's is 1926. Yes, yes. And I was like, oh, yeah, this must yeah. be the earliest one. M's the 30s, oh, so yeah. Actually, remember me. Yeah. me. Well, if, maybe if it was just, you asked if a if fucking was... question, I answered, you slag. <laughs> If it was just Jack and I, I think the furthest you'd go back is about 1956. Yeah, yeah. Well, on that note, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening to us talk about some truly harrowing pieces of cinema for the last two hours. Yeah. Uh, You can follow us on all social media if you want to learn more about harrowing pieces of cinema. We are Sequelizers on Twitter. Instagram and Facebook and all the good podcast services and all that kind of stuff. You can go to sequelizers.com. You can find our shop. You can find our discord. You can find the links to our Patreon and the links to all of our personal social media stuff. I am JLW Chambers. I'm usually tweeting about work stuff. I now tweet about work stuff, which feels weird, but (laughs) I'm in that conversation now. So if you want to learn how Google works and SEO works, uh, I tweet about wrestling. I tweet about video games and films as well. So there you go. Matt, how can people follow you on the Twitters and the internets? Mother! No. Um, Stogs, S-T-O-G-H-Z on the various social medias. You can go to the redrighthand.co.uk to read my reviews. You can go to cheesemint.com to see the things that I make. Then also, at the minute, I've got 11 reviews that I have to actually finish typing up. So, yeah. Well, chop, um, chop, Stogden. Come on. Brighton fucking pitches for Series 9. Anyway. <laughs> No, you're not. We just talked about that. (laughs) (laughs) Writing one word at a time, slowly and uh, thoughtfully. Tim, if someone wanted to get a hold of you to see what it was like to be in the chamber, uh, like this podcast where you're trapped in it for fucking hours, (laughs) with nowhere else to go other than the one seat you're in, the ultimate chamber film is a podcast. Where could they find you to discuss that stuff? Uh, I am currently trapped in the chamber that is Twitter, a very bad website, which is like being in a hole 
where a lot of people are shouting through tubes at There's you. lots of neo-Nazis, ironically mm. enough. Fucking hell, oh, yeah. God. Uh, but yes, yeah, so you can find me there, trivia underscore lad uh, on Twitter, which is where I will link to anything interesting that I've been up to, uh, or if I've not been up to anything interesting, it's just me retweeting memes. Wholesome. That's what Twitter's all about, right? So yeah, you can go and support us. Like I said, all the links on Sequelizers dot com if you like to review us and share all your reviews and stuff please do so on apple Podcasts, google podcasts pod chaser all that kind of stuff where you can review podcasts we'd very much appreciate the support and spreading the good word of sequelizers leading up to the epic launch of season nine coming up in a couple of weeks thank you very much for listening everybody we'll be back next week and i know i say this every time but it is something completely different Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully a lot cheerier kind of theme next week. Nah, fuck that. It's going to be harrowing. Okay, great. No. I was going to go for a more <laughs> kind of cheery kind of thing, but Matt has, uh, has ruined it. And I will tease, it's a Patreon pick, ladies and gentlemen. Yep. It is the final Patreon pick of the interseason. And uh, if you've been keeping track and you know who the executive producers are, which is impressive in and of itself, you know whose pick it is. So maybe you've already had it teased on the Discord. Who knows? But if you haven't, you'll find out next week when that episode comes out. And until then, thanks so much for listening. See you later. Mother! Mother! See, I always think of the Danzig song. Mother! Yeah. Mother!